Summer driving is here, and so are the red-hot deals on the best tire brands at Dobbs. Money saver June deals on new sets of Goodyear, Cooper, Continental, Michelin, and Pirelli tires. Click on GoToDobbs.com to find your next set of tires today. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Get ready for winter driving at Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers with super deals on tires, including up to $200 on new Goodyear tires, plus oil changes, brakes, batteries, and more. For value and savings, click on gotodobbs.com today. Time now for the BK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. They'll bring it in. Shoot, score! Brandon Saad. They played the pass the whole way. He took the shot, and the Blues have a lead. Hill, the Blues get it. They shoot, they score! Ham's guy, our guy, Barbashev. 2-2 the score. Dick Candles it in. They put it to the goal. They score! O'Reilly! has put the Blues on top, three to two. Two seconds to go, they shoot, it's blocked to the corner, and that's over. Bring out the Zamboni. On the road, the Blues just beat the number one team in the league. They've won back-to-back games, and a team win tonight at T-Mobile Arena, 3-2 Blues win. They're back, ladies and gentlemen, the St. Louis Blues. No more eight-game losing streak. Instead, it's a two-game win streak, and they just took down the top team. One's a fluke. Two's a winning streak. You're darn right it is. That's Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Alex Ferrario. No BK. His tummy's upset. He'll be back with us tomorrow. That was that was mean. Uh, that even felt on, mean me saying. Man. He's got the flu. I know. I apologize. BK's yeah, out. His tummy is bothering Hopefully. Be, that felt, even for me, who's just mean to him, that felt mean coming out. So if you're listening, BK, we know you are. Uh, I apologize. He'll be back with us tomorrow. But T-Bone and I are with you today up until 2 o'clock as the Blues win against Vegas in Vegas over the weekend and now you come out of this eight game losing streak with a victory against the San Jose Sharks which look San Jose might be the worst team in the NHL despite them having a 5-9 and 3 overall record and they've won two in a row the blues though it was an impressive victory against Vegas T-Bone and here's why some would look at that and say Vegas was in a little bit of a trap game themselves a five game win streak on the road uh they come back Jack Eichel, emotional win over the Buffalo Sabres. This felt like the trap game that the Blues have fallen victim to in the past. But you still went up against a really good goaltender in Aiden Hill who was playing for Vegas. You still took on a Vegas team that had allowed only 37 goals in the National Hockey League, which is one of the best in the NHL, which means their defense is also very good. And you found a way to pull out that victory. And in all all reality, the Blues played a very 
sound game in the first two periods. Third period got away from them as they were clinging on to that one goal lead, but that's where their goaltender was the break glass in case of emergency, and Bennington shined in that one. So for me, that's everything you wanted to see, and hopefully that provides them more confidence moving into tonight's game against Colorado. Yeah, I, I thought they played really well over the weekend. I, I was actually stunned to see them play that well with the Vegas Golden Knights because I thought, you know, the way they played against the San Jose Sharks, I thought they were going to lose that game handily to the Vegas Golden Knights because they were getting beat back door, which has been a constant problem, and they've been outmuscled in front of their net. And really, they kept the Vegas Golden Knights to the outside for a big chunk of that game. I mean, you look at natural stat trick, the Blues outchanced the Vegas Golden Knights. They had 24 scoring chances, 4 to 20, yep. and it was 8 to 8 in high danger scoring chances allowed. And that's pretty good, holding the Vegas Golden Knights in that high-powered offense to just 8 scoring chances in a game. So the St. Louis Blues showed up against the Vegas Golden Knights, played really well, and it starts to make me think that, hey, maybe they found something to build that confidence that you're talking about. I'm not saying they're going to reel off 10 in a row because that would be incredible and what a roller coaster of year it would be. But I'm starting to think that, okay, they're out of that kind of lull, and now we're going to get back to seeing what we thought were the St. Louis Blues, where they're going to probably give up a lot of high-danger scoring chances. They're probably going to give up some danger scoring chances because I'm not sure the defense is going to get to a level to where they were against the Edmonton Oilers in that 2-0 shutout. But they look more like themselves now, which is a good sign to see because had they not and they floundered, continued to flounder like a fish out of water, <laughs> we might be talking about a rebuild. But I'm starting to think that they're starting to turn the page just a little bit. Well, here. and that's the bigger part. And Craig Berube talked post game after that victory. But that is the bigger part there. You know, when Doug Armstrong addresses his team and brings up that reword, reword, everyone's looking at it saying, OK, this is a lost season. And it was just a matter of getting some confidence back. And that's what kind of Craig Berube alluded to after that victory against Vegas. I think um, you know our puck play has been pretty solid. Not not making too many turnovers. We had a couple there tonight, but you know we don't need to give up that shorty. Um, but overall, like when you're when you have good puck play, you know it keeps teams from not getting freebies. And that's just it. You're building in small areas. The turnovers, they weren't as bad as it was in the previous games, like against Philadelphia, against L.A., Montreal, the Islanders. You weren't turning the puck over a lot. That's a building block. You found offense from lines other than Thomas Tarasenko and Buchnevich. O'Reilly's been scoring. Uh, you've got Brandon Saad picking up some goals. Shen's line's having success. That's a building block. The bigger building block for me, T-Bone, was the second period. You outshot them 19 19 to 8 in the second period. It was the second most shots on goal in the second period that you've had this season. The most was against Edmonton in that 3-1 loss where you put 20 on net, but you put 19 on net and you scored two goals in that second period, a period where you were a minus 13 going into. That's a building block. You held on in the third period to a lead, which you haven't done this season. That's a building block. And then defensively, like you mentioned, you were keeping Vegas to the outside. It was a really sound game defensively with an exception in a couple of different areas, those are all building blocks and you're finding ways to stop that snowball from rising, which is a, a a big asset for this team compared to what they were in the midst of that losing skin. And that's the biggest thing for me is if you can prevent that snowball moment, then the Blues are going to be fine in most of these games because typically when it occurs, we've talked about it, where they give up one goal, heads dip, and then the next thing you know, there's two more goals that are in the net and the game's over, even though it's the second period. And in the last two games, you haven't seen that. Now, 
I am a little concerned that they continue to blow one goal leads, but you know I think that's going to happen over time. I think nah, that'll get corrected. It's just blues hockey in the last few years. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, we like to keep it close. We like to make them feel yeah. like they're in it still. Yeah, you don't want people to feel bad. But I, I, I do think that will be corrected as well. So watching the Blues play that game against the Vegas School, nice. They did. They limited everything that I had concerns about. Turnovers weren't as bad. Keeping them to the outside, they played a really good defensive, sound game. And honestly, the, I thought their best pairing. The last two games, especially, I think the game against Vegas, everybody was kind of even in terms of when I look at them and was judging them based on the eye test. I think the Rose and Mikola pairing has been great for this Blues team. Like, those guys have been really good. And that's saying something considering that they're your third pairing. And now that when Bortuzzo went out, I liked I liked what Mikola and Bortuzzo were doing. And then when Bortuzzo went out, I went, no offense, Callie, but I went, oh, God, we got to see Rosen more. <laughs> but, hey, he's been good. Give him credit. Callie Rosen and Nico Mikola have arguably been the best pairing for the St. Louis Blues in the last two games during this little mini winning streak, in my opinion. You go all the way back to the L.A. Kings loss. That was the last time Callie Rosen had played. And, T-Bone, you and I, we were watching that game, and we both said to each other, this isn't a good look for Callie Rosen. Callie Rosen was on the ice for, I think, three goals against. He just wasn't. He wasn't looking the way lost. Yeah, he looked lost out there. That's the best way to put it. He was an asset last season for this team when they absolutely needed him to. But like he looked lost. He sat out after that game and didn't play up until Robert Bortuzzo went on the IR and he played against San Jose at a sound game. And then, of course, played in that one against the Vegas Golden Knights. There's a stat, though, that is fascinating to me about that pairing. But before we talk about that, here's Craig Berube talking about how good Callie Rosen has been. Yeah, he's good. He's on his toes and. He's got good feet, and um, like I said, he's got good hands, so he's got to continue to do that. He's given us good minutes. You, you're getting something from Callie Rosen that you need your defense to do, and it's chipping in offensively. Jeremy Rutherford's got a great piece up on The Athletic uh, talking about how Callie Rosen was a key cog in that goal that was scored by Brandon Sod against Vegas, where he chips in on the board. It goes behind the net. Josh Levo up to Ryan O'Reilly. Boom, goal there. The same can be said about Brandon Sod, who scored the goal. Rosen picking up the assist. But how about this? At 5-on-5 five five in the last two games, Callie Rosen has been on the ice and for 20 minutes. He's been on the ice for five goals scored for St. Louis and zero goals against <laughs> like he's a really good piece to have on your third pairing. So he and Nico Mikola, you're right, Tanner. They've been very solid for Craig Berube. They're using them more in the third period, which an advantage, which is an advantage because the last few games has gotten to the point where you don't have a third pairing in the third period. It comes down to Falk, Pareko, and Letty are all playing advanced minutes because you don't trust any of these other guys. Well, now you can throw Callie Rosen and Nico Mikola out there, and it's giving the Blues an opportunity to, one, create some more offense, but two, have depth on your defensive side. And the other thing, too, and I'm just going to throw the whole defensive core into this, is that, and you mentioned it with Rosen stepping up for one of those goals, the Blues, we've talked about it all year long. The defense has been aggressive, playing that offensive mindset, pinching, but it leads to a lot of odd man rushes. They didn't give that up really against the Vegas Golden Knights. They did a pretty good job of knowing when to attack and yeah. when to be kind of passive and kind of skate back and make sure that they didn't give up those odd man rushes. And I think that was the biggest thing that I also liked in that game was, yeah, the defense was good. They kept Vegas to the outside and sure they weren't getting beat back door a lot. But the fact of the matter that they weren't giving up all these odd man rushes, now sure they had the mistake on the power play where they ended up giving up the breakaway that it's a rare goal. turnover that happens but if you're not giving up those odd man rushes this defense is going to stand a little bit better a chance that was that was one of the problems for the blues that they were giving up so many odd man rushes where it was like oh here we go again i didn't see that this weekend against the vegas golden knights i i thought overall that the defense played well my hope is that the, it 
builds and doesn't become like the Edmonton Oilers game where it was like, man, this defense looks really good. And then you lost eight yeah. in a row. And yeah. that, that was a big thing for me. Well, and that's, we got a, t- a text on the air comfort service text line, six, five, seven, eight, Oh, from the three, one, four. I still need to see this game against Colorado to make me feel better because Vegas was coming off the road trip across the country and maybe wasn't quite prepared for the blues and the blues power place or power play still looks terrible. I- I'm with you. I think they need to perform against Colorado. You beat a bad team and then you beat a team that was in the middle in the middle of a Maybe a trap game. This Colorado one's going to be important because Colorado's uh, feeling good right now. A four-game win streak. They're six, three, and one in their last ten, and they're a little bit back to who they were. So this is going to be an intriguing one. Here's why I'm more confident going into this, though. It's Jordan Bennington. Like as much as we're going to talk about the defense, you've got superb play from a goaltender that everyone was questioning. I mean, he is the sole reason you won that hockey game against Vegas. You were outshot 22 to five and five shots on goal in the third period came on the power play. So you've, you've got a goaltender who's making saves and it's just a matter of cleaning up everything in front of him. But if this is the Jordan Bennington, I'm going to give this team a chance pretty much every game that he's in net. Yeah, I'm with you there. And the biggest thing for Bennington is, like, if you look at his numbers, his numbers are, are a little low at times. That's because the defense Skewed, is just... right. Because I remember last year, there were a lot of times where it was like, oh, well, you know, you look at Bennington's numbers, are they legit or is it something with his defense? No, I mean, he was giving up bad goals last year. This year, I don't know if I've really felt that. Maybe there's one or two that I've looked back on and said, oh, you got to have that if you're Jordan Bennington. But this year, he's been so good that if you can just get kind of adequate defense in front of them, like in the Vegas Golden Knights game, then you feel comfortable that, hey, we've got a shot in this one. And and they did that against the San Jose Sharks where they played decent defense and it led to the victory. And they did it again against the Vegas Golden Knights. It's just about can they not allow the basically the tap-ins? If they Mm -hmm. allow those Those tap-ins, there's no chance for Jordan Bennington. And the way he's playing right now, if you just give him adequate defense, I think this Blues team is going to be able to really right the ship. My question for people who still doubt Bennington is who do you feel comfortable with in goal this season because all of the top goalies they're also struggling so Bennington has given up 30 goals in 10 games played Marc-Andre Fleury's given up 30 and 11 Jacob Markstrom's giving up 30 and 11 Shesterkin has given up 29 and 12 Darcy Kemper who could have seen this one coming 32 and 13 you say Saros 33 and 11 Vasilevsky 34 and 11 like all of the top goaltenders are not playing well this season. So you get adequate goaltending and Jordan Bennington's giving you more than that. You got a chance to win, which is why uh, I, I'm looking forward to this one tonight against the Colorado Avalanche. Puck drop is at eight o'clock with Curbs and Joey. Joey and I have got your pregame starting at seven o'clock here on 101 ESPN with Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Alex Ferrario. We got Katie Wu coming with us at 12 o'clock this afternoon. Kylie McDaniel at 115. Plenty of baseball over the weekend in terms of teams that are getting aggressive with some of these free agents. And that's where we're going to get to next because it seems that the bar for contention in the National League, it's going up. But what does that mean for the Cardinals if they aren't doing anything? We'll get into that next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Alongside Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Alex Ferrario. Coming up in 15 minutes, we've got our football pick And we're going to reveal the loser. I think you can pretty much guess who that one is, but we'll get into that coming up in 15. Guess who's got two thumbs and guarantee it's not him. Uh, me. This Thank guy. you very much. Uh, but no, let's uh, let's now get into some of the, the baseball news as the hot stove is heating up. Uh, free agency officially open and all of the conversations are locked to the shortstop market. And surprise, surprise, T-Bone. 
We're in there. Cardinals aren't linked to any of them. Uh, If you've been kind of keeping track of it, MLB trade rumors, Jim Bowden, so many people have been talking. So the Philadelphia Phillies have emerged as a favorite to land Xander Bogarts and also have been interested in the Trey Turner. Of course, the Bryce Harper connection. The Dodgers have been linked to Carlos Correa. I think Jim Bowden predicted that the Cubs might throw uh, a 10-year deal to Carlos Correa. The Mets are going to be involved with all of these uh, players, whether it's the shortstop market, whether it's another bat. Maybe you're going to get some starting pitch. The Giants might be getting Aaron Judge. Like, you can go down the list of teams in the National League and kind of predict what some of those free agent signings are going to look like. Meanwhile, the Cardinals are linked to Sean Murphy. And linked to a bat coming off of the bench or maybe a DH. All joking aside, they're not linked to these big bats. And basically, you look at that and you say, all right, the National League competition is going to be going up this season. I could pretty much anticipate the Dodgers, the Phillies, the Mets, the Braves. They're going to spend a lot of money. The Giants as well. They're going to be the top teams to go up against. And yeah, you might be the favorite in the NL Central if the Brewers don't do anything and the Pirates start trading away assets. But you don't play them as much this season. So for me, T-Bone, you look at this weekend where all of these connections have been made and you don't hear the Cardinals names and you say, Are they going to be able to survive this National League this season? Now, you know they're going to be good. You know they got the offense. They have the offense this year. That's what Eno Saris pushed back with last week with me. But if the bar for contention is going to be going up in the National League, the Cardinals might be in trouble unless they're aggressive. Yeah, when you look at the National League, right now, the way it's set up last year, the Cardinals were behind on all your contenders. I mean, you look at the Braves, I think the Braves have a better core than what the Cardinals have. They've got a better pitching staff than the Cardinals have. You look at the Mets, they're going to be big spenders, and you look at their roster, I think their roster was better than you, and they proved that in the regular season when they won, I believe it was four of seven, if I remember correctly. And then you look out west, the Dodgers, The Do- I think the Dodgers weren't as good as everybody thought they were because their pitching staff just wasn't at the point that I thought it was. But San Diego, you got the big three, and Machado, you had... Uh, Bell, you had Soto that are there. Tatis will be coming back. Like You look at all these rosters before moves are even made, and it's easy to look at them and go, yeah, I would take that roster over the Cardinals. Mm-hmm. And if all these other teams are going to be aggressive and add these big bats that we're talking about, you know, the Phillies have an interest in Bogarts. I, I expect the San Diego is going to be aggressive still because that's just kind of their mindset now. You know the Dodgers will spend big. You know the Mets will spend big still. And you know the Phillies will want to add on to a team that was – very close to winning a World Series. Like, it's easy to see all these teams wanting to take the next step, and the Cardinals are already a step behind. So they have to find a way to try and keep up with these teams. And that's why we always circle back to well, they probably should go out and spend on a short step. They probably need to go add someone like that or go add an ace tier player. And, you know, hearing the reports coming out of Cleveland where they don't want to trade Shane Bieber, it looks like if the Cardinals are going to add an ace, it's probably going to have to be via free agency. So I, I think the Cardinals can't just sit back and go, okay, we're going to throw numbers at it, and I think that's what they're probably going to do, and I disagree with that, where they're going to say, all right, we'll upgrade at the catcher position with Sean Murphy or Alejandro Kirk. We'll get about 20% above league average. And then kind of what we talked about on Friday, where it's like, okay, we've got five guys that we look at, O'Neal Carlson, Yepes, Newpar, and Jordan Walker that are kind of in the outfield. Can we hit on two of those five or three of those five to fill the void of the offense we're going to be missing from Albert Pujols, who's retiring. And I, I just think that's the wrong way to operate right now, especially when you look at the NL and you've got all these teams connected to all these big-time free agents. I think it's time that you have to make that splash to keep up with them. And I'm not saying that they need to have a payroll above the luxury tax and have a $200 million payroll and get top five, but can you climb back into the top ten and not just climb back into the top ten by going, we'll sprinkle a little here, we'll sprinkle a little bit here, we're going to get all these mid-tier free agents, throw the numbers at it. 
No, go out there and get that one solid bat that you need. And I just don't think the Cardinals have the willingness to do it. And it's frustrating, to be honest with you. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to if you're going to go a different direction than these teams and not be in on the shortstop market, because look, I mean, some of the contracts that Jim Bowden was predicting on his piece on the Athletic today. I mean, you're not going to give Carlos Correa a ten year deal. You're not going to compete with the Phillies if they want Xander Bogarts, or compete with the Angels. I think somebody had as a dark horse to get Trey Turner. Like, you're not going to compete with those teams understandably so but the direction might be going after the pitching side of things but the problem is you're not going to compete for Jacob DeGrom you're not going to compete for Justin Verlander and I don't really think there's aces available that can be that sexy trade this offseason unless somebody emerges and as Tebow mentioned I mean the reports were that uh, Bieber's not going anywhere from the Guardians this season so if that's not the direction you go and you're not getting that bat Let's play a game of can I sell you on, T-Bone. Okay. I got I'm some in. I got some sexy names for you. So John Denton covers the Cardinals for MLB.com. He put these alternatives out there for offense if the Cardinals don't upgrade at the shortstop position with these names. Can I interest you in Anthony Rizzo? Left-handed bat, possible DH. I don't think you play him in the outfield. I don't think you want to play him in the outfield. I'm not sure he's Probably ever played just outfield. DH you're going to go with that one. Josh Bell? who I think was at least somewhat connected to the Cardinals before he was traded to the Padres. And then Andrew Benatendi, who we've talked about and could be that outfield option. Those are names that, that John Denton listed as alternatives. And honestly, if you're making the trade for Sean Murphy and you're going to go get one of those high end top dogs out of the bullpen and you find a way to sign one of those three names, I don't know if I'm upset about it, I'm not sitting here thinking, man, you just you fixed your team this year. But I think one of those three options, my preference would be Anthony Rizzo, would at least give you a little bit more of an alternative than what you originally thought the offseason was going to be. Yeah, I, I mean, I think those guys would be fine to be brought in, but I, I think you can get better offensively by going bigger. And and when I say that, I know a lot of pushback is, well, they're just not going to do that. Well, they should do that. They should have the willingness to be able to go into a big contract with someone like an Alexander Bogarts or uh, someone of that ilk, maybe not the Dansby Swanson. I think Ben Benintendi's the guy that would make the most sense on this list just because I'm not sure the Cardinals want to pay someone like an Anthony Rizzo or a Josh Bell to just kind of come here and be an everyday DH because that's essentially what those guys would be. Josh Bell... I mean, he's played the outfield, but you don't want to put him out there. And Rizzo is a first baseman and a DH, and I think he's probably going to ultimately end up going back to the Yankees would be my guess. I, I don't think you want to bring those guys in because then it's just the Cardinals always talk about having flexibility and having guys that can play multiple positions. It's why I don't I think it's why when BK brings up the notion of Nolan Gorman playing in the outfield, look, I don't know if he's going to be an outfielder, but I think they'll try it. I think they'll try it just you because might have it, adds, to try it. it adds more versatility to him. So bringing in guys like Josh Bell and Anthony Rizzo, I just don't see the Cardinals doing that because it just feels like trying to put a square peg in a round hole because they're great additions. Don't get me wrong. You like their bat, but are you really going to bring someone in just to be a DH? That's why someone like Benintendi makes sense because I think you need an outfielder, get a guy that can play every day. Benintendi's got good splits between righties and lefties, and he can be DH if you need him to to get him a day off. You can put Yepes out in the outfield or whoever you need to be out there. Benintendi out of these three makes the most sense of guys that the Cardinals could target. But again, I don't know how much of a... I think he's an upgrade, but I'm not sure he's a guy that when you look at it, when the offseason concludes and you go, okay, was he the guy that we we signed to 
be the protection to Goldie and Arnado. No, he's probably more the table setter guy. Yeah. And I don't know if they need those guys because they have those guys in my Someone opinion. just texted in and said, I'm sick of this concept of needing your DH to play a position. Josh Bell would be fine. Josh Bell, when he was traded to the Padres, hit 192 and had a 75 OPS plus. If that's your DH, I don't care if he could play the outfield. That's not a bat that you're relying upon. I like the idea of Anthony Rizzo, but Anthony Rizzo is a left-handed bat that essentially is Nolan Gorman. And I think I would rather get the playing time for Nolan Gorman, whether it's DH or in the outfield or second base, than sign a guy like Anthony Rizzo, who would be good, but you'd also have to worry about the injury side of things. You're right. Andrew Benatendi is probably it, but Andrew Benatendi is probably a leadoff hitter for you rather than the guy that's hitting in between or behind or in front of Nolan Arenado and Paul Goldschmidt. So these alternative, I, I mean, look, that that's just where we're at right now. The alternatives stink. If you want some of the top bats, you either get the top bats or you're sticking with what you got. And then you're just getting complimentary pieces. And I don't know if complimentary pieces get you over the hump, um, at least in the National League, for how much these teams are significantly upgrading moving forward. But we'll talk about that with Katie Wu. She's coming up at 12 o'clock today, our Cardinals insider for The Athletic. Also, Kylie McDaniel, MLB insider for ESPN. He's going to join us at 1.15. Coming up in 15 minutes, if you've got questions, we'll give you some answers. You can text them to us on the Air Comfort Service text line at 65780. But coming up next, we find out who the loser is for Week 10 in our BK and Ferrario Pick'em Challenge Get excited, everyone, because it's our worst time of the week. We'll reveal it next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Alongside Tanner Hendrickson and I'm Alex Ferrario. No BK today. He's out sick. He'll be back with us hopefully by tomorrow. So he gets to miss out on the festivities of the college and NFL football pick em reveal. If you're just joining and you don't know what we're talking about, every week on BK and Ferrario, the three of us, we pick three different games from the college and NFL slate, and we go with the, the betting sides and the loser suffers a punishment while the other two get to brag about their victories. And we are 10 weeks in. And it hasn't gone well for all of us. Tanner's whoa, lost twice. Whoa. Hey, you've lost twice. I've lost twice, but one of those losses I was two and one. Yeah, I've, it's I've a been, loss. I've been lapping the competition. Yeah, I don't know how the hell that happened because that meant the other of us went three and zero. Oh. But Tanner's lost twice. I've lost twice, and BK has lost. I think five times. Five times because this is the tenth one. So let's see who lost week ten as we start with. T-Bone! T-Bone! Murray's dealing with a hamstring issue. Buda Baker's out with a sprained ankle. I think those are two big things to keep an eye on, so I think the Rams will be able to beat them. I'm going to take them minus one and a half. Two hands A.J. Green makes the catch. Spectacular for Cardinals. Touchdown! Mm. This spread feels a little too high. I know Oregon's high up there in the college football playoff ranking. Give me the Washington Huskies on the road. They've got a good passing game. Oregon struggled against the pass a little bit this year. I'm going to take Washington plus 13. With Brandon Dorless back in on the line. Penix. And Paul Fernandez. You and your college football picks. And he is out of here. I think Texas will win this game outright and knock TCU out of the college football playoff, but I think TCU is going to cover. I'm going to take the Horned Frogs plus seven. Miller has a little crease, has a block on the edge. Look out, Kendrick Miller in a foot race. They won't catch him. And the Frogs with the first touchdown tonight, 75 yards. So once again, T-Bone goes two and one. 
Uh, again, if you're if you're going with our bets, fade me and fade BK. But yeah, those guys stink. Tanner Weekly is two and one. I think what you've probably finished one and two maybe once. Uh, yeah, I've gone one and two once, zero oh and three once, and then I've gone two and one every week, but one where I went three and zero. Oh. So T Bone crushes it on that one, and uh, basically he was two and zero oh after Saturday, and he was feeling good because BK and I we didn't look too pretty after Saturday. Uh, so Tanner sitting at two and one. Let's see what our guy BK came up with. I like Ole Miss plus the 12 points at home against Alabama. And the Wildcat for Quinshawn Judkins. Straight ahead. Touchdown, Ole Miss. Second time today he scored. Freaking game I bet on Alabama they lose. Tampa Bay Buccaneers that indicates they are a better team right now than the Seattle Seahawks. Give me the Seahawks. They're all the way in Germany. Seattle looks his way. Looks the other way. And it's a touchdown, Chris Godwin. Mm, he's going to take the, the 49ers. Okay, good. Minus the say. seven points. I I absolutely hate this pick. 32. Play action, right, shot downfield, yeah. breaking open for the touchdown. It's DeAndre Carter. So Carter runs through the Niners' secondary. Mm. So BK, once again, goes one and two, sitting with... The losses in the NFL, BKOing the Seattle Seahawks, and uh, pretty much weekly going one and two. So, if he's lucky, if he's lucky, let's see what yours truly came up with. All right, I'm gonna back T Bones Illini. Uh, I'm gonna say I'm taking Stupid Illinois team. minus six and a half. Purdue ball eligible with the win right back in the Big Ten West title race. So, what a victory for Jeff Brom and this Boilermakers team. I think I'm going to back my Dallas Cowboys and take them minus four and a half at the Packers. 28 yards for the win. Kick is up and good! A Green Bay winner! I'm going to take the Dolphins minus three and a half. Wilson breaks to the outside. Got blocking in front of him. Touchdown! How is that game the one I win on? And the two that probably should have been locks were the ones that I lose on. Like Dallas led by 14 going into the fourth quarter. The best defense in the league, I'm told. A team that could win the Super Bowl this year. They ish the bet against Aaron Rodgers and that Packers team. That's what happens. And what happened to your Illinois team? I thought they were going to rebound off of an awful hey, loss and hey. win the win the Big Ten. I was told the Big Ten champions. I told you on Friday that taking a spread that big in an Illinois-Purdue game was a bad decision. So that one, that one I felt like you're going to lose. Now, I will say that the Miami one felt like a lock, and I thought for sure that the Dallas one was a lock for sure. So I can feel your frustration. Let's not go pin this on the Illini, okay? Oh, I will pin any, this on the any Illini. Any Big Ten game with a spread over three, just take the plus, because there's no way it's going to be that <laughs> no, big a spread. because I, I thought Illinois had a great defense. I thought Illinois' defense would well, find a way to eliminate the we opponent. We found out the hard way that they're uh, average. Purdue? Really? Purdue. So I lose one and two. Yeah. BK's one and two. Yeah. And the spread is the difference maker. Yeah. And if I'm not mistaken, my spread was what, minus 22? Yeah. And that was because of that stupid Illinois game. Yeah. Yeah. It happened. And BK, so BK could have lost if the Chargers would have won by 10 or more. And they won. And it looked like that at the first half, and they won by like six. So I lose again. One and two. One and two, where I thought that the locks were there. So. 
feels good. Not Third lose. punishment's coming up. By the way, all of the punishments we're going to try and make up uh, because we're like four behind. BK is going to serve his Pinocchio outfit punishment standing on Olive Wednesday, I believe. I will serve my coffee with mayonnaise Thursday or Friday. And then the Sports Illustrated one is to be determined because there's yeah. a lot that goes into that. And frankly, none of us want to oil up BK. Well, I can guarantee you I won't be oiling up maybe BK. Ryder, maybe Ryder. Ryder might be in on oiling up BK. Yeah, I mean, that's an executive producer's job. He'll take care of that for Ryder, us. are you cool with oiling up BK for a Sports Illustrated picture? Yeah. All right, cool. So Ryder's down with that. And then Wait, the next one. one team. Yeah, hey, thanks for that, Ryder. Uh, none of us wanted to vomit. The next one for everyone to vote on, uh, the new punishment that is added is uh, the loser. So I will have to sing a song from the winner's choice on air karaoke style. Uh, so that will be added to reading 50 shades of gray, pay 50 shades of gray, a page of that on air or pushing the football weight sled, the length of the football field while Carrie Davis yells at me in the freezing cold. I'm trying to figure out what song I'd want you to sing on air. Probably should be, be believe it or not, considering I never sing it with you. No, no, you're I. That sounds too good for you. <laughs> so those are the three punishments. You can vote on that now at 101 ESPN. You could do it on uh, on our website after the show, 101ESPN.com. So the loser is yours truly for a, another week. And we'll make our week 11 picks on Friday that you can hopefully hear me not lose once again. Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Alex Ferrario. Coming up in 15 minutes, we've got Katie Wu, our Cardinals insider from The Athletic. Uh, she is just back from Las Vegas, so we'll get her thoughts on this offseason thus far for the Cardinals. But coming up next, send us your questions. Air Comfort Service text line at 65780. We'll get to questions and answers next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. You've got questions. We may have the answers. Maybe text now to 65780. It's PK and Ferrario's questions and answers on 101 ESPN. Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Alex Ferrario. Air Comfort Service text line is 65780 as we get to questions and answers now here on BK and Ferrario. Katie Wu coming up in about 15 minutes or so. Let's start with this one from the 314. Do you guys believe, where'd this one go? Yeah, who would you get, who would you trade first from the Cardinals? Lars Newport? Or Juan Yepes. I don't know why I didn't pronounce that correctly. Lars Newport. It was a lot, long weekend, apparently. Lars Newport. Who's the other one? Juan Yepes. I I personally would look at Lars Newport. I uh, I I think Juan Yepes is gonna be a really good player. That's got good pop. Can hit both righties and lefties. Lars has a split difference between righties and lefties. Can't hit lefties as well. And I I truly think. That, and it's not a shot against Lars Newport because I think a player like this can can stay in the league for a while. But I think the ceiling for Lars Newpar is a fourth outfielder. And I, with that being said, if a lot of teams are high on Lars Newpar, I think his value is never going to be higher than it is now. I would look to move him over Juan Yepes. Yeah, I think I'm with you. Um, I just love Juan Yepes's bat. And I know the only position you could use him at is the DH spot. But I just love that option off of the bench. Lars Newpar, I, I mean, they're two of the same. The only difference is you got one who's a lefty and one who's a righty. And obviously, Lars Newpar can play the outfield. But... If you're going all in on Dylan Carlson and if Jordan Walker, you believe is going to be here. I mean, you got two of the three spots locked down and I just, I, I feel like they're going to 
stick with the Tyler O'Neill experiment here. And the guy that you're going to get the most for in return, in my opinion, is Lars Newtbar. So if I can make a move for him this offseason to go get an everyday bat in my lineup, I think I'd pull the trigger on that one before I would do it on Juan Yapez. Uh, from the 314, you guys believe Miami is the top team in the AFC after this weekend? I'm going to say no. I don't know about you. I mean, the fact that the Buffalo Bills are now a wildcard team is just wild. I I think the best team is still Kansas City. I Watching them play, I mean, knowing that Mahomes and Andy Reid and Travis Kelsey have been together for however many years it's been at this point, I, I just trust those guys. I'm always going to take the team that is been there, done that over a team like Miami that this will be their first year of legitimate contention where – yeah, everything's great with Tua and Tyreek and Jalen Waddle, and you got the first-year head coach and Mike McDaniels, but what happens when you get to the playoffs because it's a different animal? And how many times have we seen co- teams and coaches in the in this first year where they all this hype around them, and then they just fall apart and lay an egg in the playoffs? So I, I think Kansas City's still the team to beat in the AFC. I just look at them. And now so the Smith-Schuster injury will be uh, something to keep an eye on depending on how long he's out because he's into concussion protocol now. But I think they're by far the best team in the AFC still. Yeah, I I mean, like, if you go through it, nobody in the AFC South is a top team. I mean, the Titans are just a joke, in my opinion. Did you see Indianapolis? Yeah, I saw Indy. Who who predicted that Jeff Saturday was going to get a win this weekend? I mean, this guy. Well, good for you. <laughs> they beat a worse team in the Las Vegas Raiders. That the, guy should be fired on the spot. The Ravens are a good team, but the Ravens can't stop anybody's offense. But I mean, I guess if your offense outscores and if they wait, OBJ, OBJ was he's predicted to be going. Was he predicted to go to Baltimore or was it somewhere else? Uh, Baltimore, Dallas, Buffalo, uh, Dallas. There's, that was the other like one. Four or five teams. Like if they get OBJ, then I might be able to believe that that they're one of the top teams. But to me, I I still think it's the Chiefs. The Chiefs have. I, I mean, I just think the Chiefs' defense is better than Miami's defense. And if you just look at who Miami has gone through, like they've beaten the Browns, they beat the Bears, they beat the Lions, they beat the Steelers, they lost to the Viking. Like. Who have they beaten with the exception of the Buffalo Bills that you would sit there and say that's a pretty good opponent they them to take down? And the other thing, too, is when they face a decent offense, they're giving up a ton of points. Exactly. Too. It's, and, a, it's, a, it's a shootout for them. Yeah, and, that, and that's the biggest thing for, against them because when you get to the playoffs, you can have some games where that occurs, but it's hard to win constantly like that in the playoffs. I mean, look at the Chiefs last year. I mean, they weren't in a whole lot of shoot. They were in the shootout with Buffalo and they won that game in overtime, which was a miracle. And then they couldn't stop Cincinnati and Cincinnati goes on to beat them. So it's just hard to continuously do that in the playoffs. You can get away with it in the regular season, but once you get to that playoffs, that's when you have to have your defense tighten up. And that's why they went out and got guys like Bradley Chubb to try and get a better pass rush to try and slow that down. I know they only gave up 17 points yesterday, but the Cleveland Browns stink without uh, Deshaun Watson at quarterback. From the 618, guys, Greg Amzinger keeps predicting Trey Turner to the Cardinals. Is there any rumor about this or is he just guessing? Like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to discount anything Greg Amzinger says because that man is connected. Like, if you don't think Greg Amzinger is talking to other teams, other people involved with Major League Baseball teams, you're sadly mistaken. But with that being said, I just can't take what he is saying for truth from everything else that we're hearing from what Derek Gould has been reporting on the payroll and from what all of these teams are saying that this team is connected to Trey Turner and it's been the Angels it's been the Dodgers it's been the Phillies how can the Cardinals be in those conversations if all of those other teams are yeah I 
I think the Cardinals have probably reached out to Trey Turner's camp just to get a gauge on where, where he, or what he's looking for, I should say, in his next contract. But I don't think that Trey Turner is going to be the biggest acquisition that you see from the Cardinals this offseason, just because I'm not, I don't think they're going to be swimming in those waters based on everything that you mentioned that we're hearing or seeing, I should say, that's being reported. I just can't see them being involved in Trey Turner. I thought it was a realistic possibility until last week we found out that the payroll. It's going up, but it's not going. They're not going to have as much money to spend as we originally thought. So, I don't think they're going to be in on Trey Turner. I'm not sure they're going to sign one of the shortstops. I think the biggest acquisition you will see is probably at catcher if they sign Contreras. If they trade for Murphy, I think they'll do something else, but I'm not sure what. From the three one four guys, is Tanner the biggest trash talker off air after he wins the pickums? Absolutely. I don't really think you're that much of a trash talker. Like I. Cool. I like, I, I'm not so much you a trash talker. You just kind of rub it in that we suck. Yeah, I love to brag. Which, I, I mean, I don't even think I can argue that right now. Like, who would be the biggest trash talker? Um, Is it me? It might be you. It might be me. Yeah, and you stink. I know. <laughs> man, you got a problem, man. See, I didn't even really trash talk the first couple of weeks of the season because I just, I didn't win, but I just didn't lose. So I'm just sitting there going, man, if I run my mouth, it's going to come back and get, maybe that's why I've been losing. Probably. I've been getting too cocky. Oh, if you, you want to buy me a six pack or something, I will take it as no, like a, I, I don't want to do that one. You got by the way, you and BK are gonna owe me some because uh Jaguars <laughs> are not getting the seven wins. My Ugh. god, Jacksonville. Uh let's do this one, the final one before we get to Katie Wu. Guys, for the Cardinals, if you're not acquiring a bat and Sean Murphy is the guy that you acquire, do you think this is the year that the Cardinals miss the playoffs? No. I I think they're going to make upgrades. I think they're going to bank on some young guys, but I don't think they're going to fall out of playoff contention. I mean, you look at the MLB, A, about everybody gets in, but B, C, (laughs) um, I'm not sure there's a team that's going to take that stride forward and beat them in the division. Like, I think Milwaukee is about to go through a retool. Cubs might spend some money, but even if they do, I think they're probably another year or two away. Reds aren't even contending, and the Pirates aren't close to contending either. So, at minimum... I think it was Jim Bowden that was on with us, and he said, you know, I would take the Cardinals to win their division right now, and that's without any moves. And I think that's why, like, they they may win less than they did this year because more of a balanced schedule, but I don't think they're missing the playoffs. I still think they're going to win the division. That gets them in. Yeah, their season's going to be tougher now that you're playing every team at least once. Um, but I, I still think the, the younger players contributing are going to be an asset. And I believe even if you get Sean Murphy, like you're making your offense better because you got absolutely nothing from your catcher last year, but you're still not filling that void from Albert Pujols. But the question is, are you going to do that with multiple guys? And does this new hitting approach take into effect and make the team better than what they were without Jeff Albert? And understand that this team was good last season, um, but you are taking out Albert Pujols. He's Tanner Hendricks and I'm Alex Ferrario. Appreciate all the questions on the Air Comfort Service text line. Uh, Coming up in 15 minutes, we've got in or out, so you can send us the scenarios and we'll tell you if we are in or out. But coming up next, Katie Wu, our Cardinals insider for The Athletic, joins us next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Hendrickson, I'm Alex Ferrario. No BK with us today. He's sick, so hopefully he'll be back with us tomorrow. But we get into our Brown and Crouppen celebrity line now and welcome in everyone's favorite, our Cardinals insider, 
Katie Wu, fresh off of the GM meetings out in Las Vegas. Katie, how are you today? What's up, guys? Uh, BK, hope you feel better, but I was joking with Tanner that this should be a seamless segment with oh, no BK. Yeah, you know, we, we've changed the name to it when he's out to Ferrario and Company. Whoa. Oh, I like that. It's very nice. Yeah, Tanner doesn't get his name on the show. He knows that even if it happens. But... I'm going to get my photo on the website. <laughs> Katie, did no you... No respect for T-Dog. Katie, yeah. did, you, uh, did you come back to St. Louis after Vegas, or did you go back to California? Back in St. Louis for one more week, figured with the uh, the BBWA Awards uh, going on this week, and then, of course, the usual awards and Albert Pujols being honored for a lifetime achievement. A good week to come back, and then we'll be... Uh, Heading out on vacation, actually. I'm very excited for this. This is my first vacation in like two years um, after this week. So I'll be back in California for that. I just uh, I just assumed you came back for the week because you wanted to check out winter in St. Louis. Yeah, get some snow. Some yeah, ice. It's going to be great. Welcome back. It, it's a lot. It's a lot, you guys. I turned my heater on yesterday and I had like the bathrobe, the, the pajamas, all the blankets, the, the heated blanket. Still wasn't doing it for me. You know I'm not a cold-weather girl. (laughs) That's very true. Well, Katie, you came back from Vegas where the GM meetings were, and let's just start big picture. What did you learn from the Cardinals side of things and just baseball, your takeaways from the meetings? Yeah, well, this year was a a little different just because the GM meetings happened so soon after the World Series. That's just one of the lingering effects of the lockout. Um, But from the Cardinals, really no surprises. It, It was pretty obvious that cashing is their number one priority. Um, sure, there's other avenues in which they would like to upgrade the club, but in just talking to execs both with the Cardinals and outside the Cardinals, it seems like St. Louis is really in an awkward position because they cannot focus on the other things they'd like to improve until they nail down the most dire need, which, of course, is a starting catcher. So they're kind of in this little bit of fluctuation where they're figuring out what kind of catcher they like first, who they, the kind of profile they want, what they're looking to identify as traits they really like in a catcher, And then they're going to pursue which avenue makes the most sense, whether that is signing one in free agency, using their farm system and their plethora of young major league talent players to work a trade. You know, there's a lot of moving parts here. So it's another vague answer, you guys. But the biggest takeaway I took away from from Las Vegas was things change all the time. The one thing the Cardinals are really committed to doing right now is finding their catcher. Then they can start building, build off other pieces after that. Katie, mentioning the catcher position, and we talked about it, about that being the building block for them this offseason. When you look at their kind of expectations for their payroll and their spending, we know we had Mo mention uh, at the end of season presser that the payroll is going up. But then Derek Gold was reporting at the St. Louis Post last week that, you know, they're counting for Wayno's deal with the deferred money and part of Arnado's salary onto the books this year. What is your expectation for how much they have to spend and how much they're going to be willing to spend this offseason? Because it feels like it's going to be a lot less than we originally thought. Yes, the payroll is, you know, everyone's favorite favorite concept right now. <laughs> I think something that was made more clear and that fans maybe sometimes forget about, and maybe that's that's on us for not really focusing on in, in due time, is deferred money doesn't mean that they, the Cardinals just pay whatever the salary is. You know, they still have to account for, for example, Adam Wainwright's deferred salary on their 2023 books. Nolan Arnado's contract is so complex. If I tried to break it down on air, we'd be talking until the end of the show. <laughs> um, but I did think that Derek did a very good job in breaking all of that down. So, yes, the payroll's going up, and it's going to match to the trajectory similar to where the Cardinals were heading before 2020 in the pandemic. So they were continuously, incrementally rising from 2016 to 2019. You're going to see that same kind of increased payroll. Now, even when, when Mo went out there and said the payroll was going up, it was pretty clear that the Cardinals are never going to be a team that shells out 10 million or 10 years, 330 million for Carlos Correa. 
but the Cardinals did it did sound like more flexibility in terms of the free agency market to spend, and they do compare it to years prior. Now, this doesn't mean that the Cardinals aren't going to necessarily make a big move, but I think when we see St. Louis and their history over the last several seasons, those big splashes have come via trades. John Mazzalek has done an incredible job. You think of Paul Goldschmidt, Nolan Arnato. Those are franchise-altering trades. So I think, again, it's really hard to predict these things, but I think if the Cardinals are able to swing a big trade, that will maybe grant them a little bit more flexibility and maybe they feel a little bit more comfortable to use some of that increased payroll to spend on other avenues. They mentioned they want to add a bat. You know, There's no harm in adding to the outfield. So. It's all fluid. These things are in flux. Um, but I do think while the payroll is going up, you know, of course, they were never going to be the, the big, like, let's spend, let's get the ace shortstop. They were going to get one of those, maybe. But when you think about the, the deferred money and the Nolan Arnauto contract, you know, I would say they're still going to be above middle of the pack and better than they were over the last couple of years, but they certainly aren't going to match the Mets or the Dodgers payroll, and they never really were going to. Again, we're talking with Katie Wu, our Cardinals insider for The Athletic. You can follow her on Twitter, at Katie J. Wu. Katie, going back to the catcher conversation, all of these names have been coming up. Of course, it started with Wilson Contreras, then it turned to the Toronto Blue Jays catchers and Alejandro Kirk and Danny Jansen, and then the most recent one, which I think has been the hottest one out of all of them, has been Sean Murphy from the Oakland Athletics. Uh, are, Are those the four catchers and do you feel like any of those four are the best fit for this team that's so funny my editor just now sent me a, a live story on the catching uh catching options for the cardinals and sean murphy is the headline photo so <laughs> of course um yes you know when you're looking at, at the cardinals and the catchers market both in free agency and in trades those are the four names that that jump out wilson Contreras is going to be the top free agent in the catching market especially from an offensive uh, perspective when you look at trades, I mean, Sean Murphy has been generating interest from the A's side dating back to the trade deadline. The Blue Jays have three promising catchers, so they could obviously, you know, find a way to trade some of that depth. But the thing is, is the Cardinals are by far not the only team that need a starting catcher. So if you're going to go after Sean Murphy, who is probably the best all-around product in terms of offense, defense, and years of control – he's going to come at a very high price. Same with guys like Alejandro Kirk and Danny Jansen. And then, of course, with Wilson Contreras, you know, he's going to be commanding a large free agent contract. If the Cardinals do elect to go pursue Contreras in free agency, that would mean by default those other upgrades they're looking to do would have to come via trade. So these things are all connected. I do think when you're looking at the catching market, those are kind of the top four names in terms of just what the Cardinals are looking for in conversations at the GM meetings on Tuesday last week. John Mazalak made it very clear that they're looking for the best all-around catcher. They're not necessarily foregoing defense. I don't think the Cardinals will ever do that, regardless of position, but there does seem to be an emphasis on trying to find more offensive production from that position that they've had. Obviously, this is kind of uncharted territory. The Cardinals have not looked for a starting catcher in uh, two decades. So <laughs> I think they're really going to take their time here and identify what kind of backstop they want. And the good news is they're in the position to do so They're not relegated to just finding one specific guy. They can search for free agency. They can search via trade. They can find a long-term solution, or they can find a one- to two-year stopgap until uh, Herrera is ready. So they do have a lot of options, and I think that's going to bode in their favor. Katie, when you look outside the catcher's position, because we all, as you said, they're going to get somebody. Outside that catcher position, where do you think the other big addition is this offseason? Do you think it's another position player, or do you think it's another pitcher, whether that be a high-end reliever, or maybe they go out and do sign one of the aces on the market? I think it depends on what they get out of the catcher. So if they get a catcher that has a promising offensive upside, 
that can also check two boxes, right? You get your starting backs up and you get the bat that they want to add to the lineup, which would then allow them to maybe pursue some pitching depth or middle infield depth or whatever the outfield depth, or whatever they want to look for. Um, there's no, when you're looking at how the current outfield is projected, how the current rotation is projected, those are all things where if the season started today, the Cardinals would be fine in that starting opening day roster. Would they be, like, enthralled, very excited about it? Would fans be very excited about it? No, I think people would just be just okay with those options. Um, So I do think, again, it's all connected. Cardinals have made it very clear that they want to address their catcher first before they look at other avenues. But, of course, this is baseball we're talking about. There is a chance they just switch if the, uh, the price and the timing is right. But I do think, you know, it all depends on what they do to address their catching position and then how they do it, whether that's signing a free agent or trading, that will kind of create the trickle-down effect for the other moves they make. Katie, I know that we've talked about you know finding an ace for this pitching staff. That might be the route to go uh, in the offseason, and the free agencies just don't make sense when it comes to DeGrom and Verlander. That's a bidding war that the Cardinals aren't going to get involved with. You know, We brought up Shane Bieber possibly to trade for, but the Guardians kind of nixed that. What about Tampa Bay? Because BK brought this one up last week with Tyler Glass now, who dealt with injuries, was healthy at the end of the season. Tampa Bay might always be interested in trading top talent for lesser talent. Do you feel like maybe that could be that ace that the Cardinals would be interested in? I do think if the Cardinals acquire another top-tier starter, it would be in the form of a trade, just because, like you said, Alex, there's really no free agent ace top pitcher that makes sense for the Cardinals right now in terms of cost. The Rays are one of the most uh, heavily aggressive teams right now. I know this early in the offseason, that seems a little strange, but they're, they've been uh, one of the teams most aggressively linked to, to starting conversations and negotiations. I do think they have somewhat of, of depth for the Cardinals to pursue. I do think the Cardinals like their rotation as it is right now, but it certainly would not hurt to find another number two or three starter. There's plenty of avenues to go for, but I, again, I do think, and I know this is a little bit of reiteration, the Cardinals aren't really looking at those avenues until they can directly identify the type of catcher they need and figure out the market price. Cardinals aren't going to overpay for anything. I think one thing we can say about John Mazalak as, as an executive, he's very consistent, very methodical. He's not going to panic trade or panic sign. So I do think it'll be a little bit of time before we see some Cardinals make some moves. Then again, like I mentioned, guys, I am going on vacation, so I would not be surprised if, like, day one they do that. Um, but I, I do think this will be a very thoughtful process in all elements, not just the catcher. Katie, final one for you, and I apologize if this is a little bit of a curveball, but I'm just curious because tomorrow's the deadline for the uh, 40-man roster uh, for Major League Baseball teams, and then, of course, the guys that aren't protected that are eligible go into that Rule 5 draft. Uh, are, you, are, you, are you thinking there's possibly any surprises from the Cardinals that get added to the 40-man roster? Added to the 40-man roster, I think there's a little – There's, it depends, right? Because it also depends who the Cardinals decide to tender and non-tender. Right. When, we asked, uh, when we asked Mo during the GM meetings about uh, where the Cardinals were approaching their plethora of uh, arbitration-eligible guys, he did say there'd be no surprises, but he also acknowledged the Cardinals kind of need to make a decision on Alex Reyes. And if they decide to tender him a contract for 2023 or elect him to become a free agent, that's a big conversation for them. I asked about Genesis Cabrera, and, and Mo said that he feels like there's a spot on, on the team next year for Cabrera. So it seems like there's only one or two decisions when it comes to tendering these arbitration-eligible players. I do think Connor Thomas, who had a very, very successful year in the minors and topped it off with a great performance in the AFL, uh, has pled his case to be added to the 40-man and protected. Um, but we'll see. It, again, it all depends on who is elected to be tendered contracts and who's not. 
But I would not be – I would be surprised if Connor Thomas was not on the 40-man roster ahead of the tender deadline, which I believe is 5 p.m. tomorrow. Yep, 5 p.m. tomorrow as the hot stove just continues to get hotter. Katie Wu, always appreciate the time. Make sure you're following along with Katie at The Athletic throughout the Cardinals offseason. Uh, enjoy the vacation, a much-needed vacation for you, and we look forward to talking to you once you're back. Thanks, guys. Have a great week. There you go. That's Katie Wu, our Cardinals insider, covering the team for The Athletic. I only bring that up because I think their 40-man sits at 38 right now. Yeah. And Connor Thomas, I I mean, he was just named the Arizona Fall League player of the year. So that kind of tells you the lefty is going to be more than likely added to that 40 man roster. Uh, Jordan Walker is not on it. I don't know if he gets that. He's not a rule five. So you don't have to worry about him. And I don't really know if there's any other players that are eligible that the Cardinals would have to put on there. Um, But she's right. I mean, if you just go through the 40 man roster, Alex Reyes is one of those players. Uh, You wonder with some of the guys that are pending free agents, if they're bringing them back. So uh, tomorrow by 5 p.m. could be interesting. But again, that is all also tied together of what your offseason looks like because if you find a way to make some trades, then your 40-man opens up. And the only reason I'm talking 40-man roster is because the Cardinals garner that so important is, yeah. well, the 40-man roster spot, we don't have one for them. So that's why I bring it up. If I had to guess, my guess is they will non-tender Reyes by 5 p.m. tomorrow and they will add Connor Thomas to the 40-man to yeah. protect him from the draft because the way that he pitched in the – Oh, Arizona yeah. Fall League, like I, I think someone would take a chance to select him, and if you're selected in the Rule 5, you have to be up in the major leagues with that team, and if they decide to option you down, that team that they selected you from, for in this case, you'd have to send them back. So I, I think the Cardinals will protect Connor Thomas because I think he's a guy that's going to contribute for them next season. I was a little surprised to hear that Genesis Cabrera might be tendered and brought back uh, after the season that he had because you could easily replace Cabrera with Connor Thomas, essentially two lefties, and Thomas has now got strikeout stuff. But if they're going to keep him, I, I think they'll keep at least two spots open. That's why I just think you swap Reyes for Connor Thomas. I, think, I If I had to guess, and again, no reporting here, just throwing it out there, I think that's what they'll do on the 40-man come tomorrow. He's Tanner Hendricks and I'm Alex Ferrario. Coming up at 15 minutes, can this line for St. Louis become last year's grief line? We'll explain. And one player who's having one heck of a season could be impactful moving forward. So we'll get into that in 15. But coming up next, in or out, you send us a scenario to the Air Comfort Service text line at 65780. We'll tell you if we are in or out next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Come on, man. Are you in or are you out? It's in or out with PK and Ferrario. It's a little rough. It's Monday. It's all right. It's how they go. Tanner Hendricks and I'm Alex Ferrario. It is BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. BK out today. Hopefully be, we'll be back with us tomorrow. We want your text, Air Comfort Service text on at 65780 to tell you if we are in or out. You give us the scenario like this one from the 314. Guys, in or out, the Cardinals don't sign Wilson Contreras. They don't trade for Sean Murphy or one of the Toronto Blue Jays catchers, and they choose to go with cheaper options this offseason. Oh, man, because I could easily see it happening. I was going to say, is it bad that I can see that scenario actually playing out? Uh, I'm going to go I'm going to go out based on what Katie said when we just talked to her about how, you know, they're going to prioritize, not prioritize. I rephrase that. 
they don't want to lose such a massive step defensively behind the plate. So that immediately makes me go, okay, it's probably not Contreras then because you're losing a step back there. It's probably Sean Murphy or it's going to be one of these guys that we're talking about. And I I just can't get behind the notion of the trade package is going to cost for Sean Murphy because don't get me wrong, Sean Murphy, good player, but it's almost like desperate. Like you, It feels like it reeks of desperation of, man, we really got to overpay for this guy because we need a catcher. So I'm going to say in on this because I don't think I don't think they should I don't think they should pay the price for Sean Murphy. I'm not sold that they're going to sign Wilson Contreras. I don't know if they like Alejandro Kirk that much. So I think they'll settle for someone as Martin Maldonado, Tucker Barnhart, one of those guys that's Ooh. on the free agent market, and it won't cost them a whole lot. And then they can still do more outside of the catcher spot. Damn, I, I'm going to say I'm out on this because I think I, if if you don't want to pay the price for Sean Murphy, then just pay the money for Wilson Contreras and accept losing the draft pick as compensation. If they're the same player and you're just getting a younger one with better defense, you're giving up a lot for them. But like you need if you're not going to spend money on a bat, well, you then you need to get a bat slash defender at the catcher position. you got to upgrade somewhere. If you're not getting the shortstops, if you're not going to sign one of the bats, like what are you doing this offseason? So I'm going to say I'm going to say I'm out on this one. I think they find a way to get some type of significant catcher uh, in the offseason. How about this one from the 636 in or out? You trade Sean Murphy for Gordon Graceffo, Yvonne Herrera and Joshua Baez. I I would probably do that deal, but I'm not sure if the A's want that deal. They might. I don't I mean, we had, I think it was Jim Bowden on. He said, well, the A's take everything. Yeah, oh, okay, they want well, we quantity can offer over something. quality. <laughs> Uh, I'd be in on that. I don't know if that would be enough for the deal because I think they want somebody that might be major league ready, but I don't know where they are. I They may not. And if that's the case, if that's the deal that they would accept, absolutely I would do that deal because you're getting rid of Yvonne Herrera. And not that I'm not sure that he's going to be a good player or not. It's just he's going to be blocked. He's with a couple the, years away still too. Yeah, with the acquisition of Sean Murphy. Uh, Joshua Baez is a couple years away. He may end up being a stud. Uh, and then Gordon Graceffo is a pitching prospect, but you got more guys down in the minor leagues like McGreevy, uh, Tinkins that's coming up. So you can afford to get rid of one of those three. So I would say, yeah, I'm in on this. Is it weird that I don't want to give up Joshua Baez just because of how bleak their outfield position looks? Like I know you've got Jordan Walker, but after that. But he's he's so far. I mean, he's probably still two or three years yeah. away. So like but I, I think look the at reason I'm looking at it is we'll find it, figure it out. But I think the reason I'm looking at it that way is because like you're banking on Tyler O'Neill to be good again. And like, are you going to keep doing with Tyler O'Neill what you've done with Paul DeYoung, where you're just going to bank on him until you've got a guy coming up in the minors. And maybe that is Jordan Walker. And you find the other person elsewhere if they sign that in the off season. But I still think I would say I'm in on this because two out of the three ain't bad. Like I'm fine with Gordon Graceffo, Yvonne Herrera, Joshua Baez. He might hurt you, but you, you really need catching. And, and he's probably the piece that I'm not sure Oakland would take in this deal because Baez. Yeah, because he missed most of this past season with, I think it was some sort of wrist injury, fra- fractured wrist or tore something in the wrist. He hasn't really played a whole lot of minor league baseball. He's one of those prospects that was drafted, I think, in the 2020 draft, if I'm not mistaken. But he's a high-end guy, and he's got some swing and miss, but he's got some serious pop. But because he's dealt with injuries last year, his value might be down a little bit. That's the guy that I just don't know if it pulls it off for Oakland. Uh, in or out, Doug Armstrong was betting on everything for the Blues this offseason to acquire Matthew Kachuk. And when that didn't happen, he had to change on the fly to put this team together. I'm out on this. Doug Armstrong is not banking on one player in an offseason and then saying, oh, crap, now what do I do? He had a plan. I think it was pretty evident that the plan all along was we have to fix our defense. Uh, I've I've said this now for a couple of weeks. I think I told you guys this. And 
I'm not saying that this player was a mistake because he was the best option available, but the biggest Blues miss, I think, was not acquiring Hampus Lindholm at the trade deadline last year. The Blues were in the running with Boston form, and Boston just gave them the better offer, and they acquired him, locked him up to a extension worth six, six and a half million dollars. Then the Blues had to pivot and go to Nick Letty because the Jacob Chikrin thing wasn't happening. They they obviously said defense is where we're going, and that's how we have to improve. And if the Calgary thing happens, the Calgary thing happens. It's pretty evident that Calgary gave the better deal in Jonathan Huberdeau and Mackenzie Weger. I mean, you can't match that if you're any team in the NHL unless you want to hurt your team significantly. So I'm out on this. Doug Armstrong knew what he was doing. The hope was that Matthew Kachuk happens, but if not, we're going to build our offseason accordingly. Yeah, I'm out on this too, and I, I think the way that it occurred, and I'm, again, just guessing here, is that they had plan A and I'm doing plan A 2.0, where it was, okay, here's the off, what the offseason is going to look like if we can acquire Matthew Kachuk, and here's what the offseason is going to look like if we don't. And when they weren't able to acquire Kachuk, they just pivot right to that other option where it was, let's focus on the defense, let's get Nick Letty, uh, locked up. We know we got to go get a backup goaltender, and we got to go and get our fourth line, um, upgrade our fourth line. And that's exactly what they did. I don't think it was one of those where, oh, crap, Kachuk's gone. Now what do we do? I think it was one of those where they had two plans and were ready for either scenario, and it happened to be the one where they didn't acquire Kachuk. Uh, from the 314, guys, in or out, you're believing that the Blues make a trade with Calgary. So what they're referring to, we're going to talk about this a little bit later, but what they're referring to is, uh, Elliot Friedman on the 32 Thoughts uh, podcast that he does on Sportsnet basically said that he was hearing Calgary is looking for scoring and he said the connection would be St. Louis. Now, he said that prior to the Las Vegas Golden Knights victory. Um, he's saying that with the intention of, you know what, the Blues just might not be good this year and they win that game. So I'm going to say I'm out on this because I don't think you're making a trade now that you've won two games against Vegas included. If this starts to go another direction, then maybe I would start believing in this one or saying I'm in on this. But for right now, I'm saying I'm out because if you're Doug Armstrong, you're going to say, all right, let's see what happens now that this team has started to win. Yeah, I'm out on this too. I I just, for me, it's just too early to pull a trade off if you're the Blues because this Blues team kind of has a feel of one of those teams where it's going to come down to deadline day when you make the decision of, what you're going to do because of the slow start that they had it's going to take some baby steps to get back to the point where you need to be to see that we're not sellers we're going to be buyers so i think i don't think there's a stand pat move for the blues because i just think that's the wrong thing to do i think you either sell or you buy but i don't think it's going to be a situation where it's oh okay we're i don't know how long we're into this a month (laughs) in and now it's oh well we're going to just sell a piece to calgary because it's time to retool or do a hockey trade for that matter i don't think you do either of those scenarios so i'm out on this i think they wait up until deadline day and then maybe they get involved with calgary but i don't think it will be until deadline day yeah we'll talk about that a little bit more in the one o'clock hour coming up next though can this line for the blues be a consistent line for the rest of the season we've got a comp that uh, bk brought up we'll talk about that and we'll talk about Braden shen's hot start to the season next here on 101 espm we're right back to the bk and ferrario podcast presented by dobbs tire and auto centers on 101 espn leave was good down low I mean, you know, he he hangs onto them pucks, and that's important for O'Reilly. Um, 
to have that, you know, give and go stuff down there. It was Craig Berube after Saturday's victory against the Vegas Golden Knights, a night where Ryan O'Reilly picked up a goal and his first assist of the season. Ryan O'Reilly's back, ladies and gentlemen. How's John Gibson doing? Is he not, nah, so? not as good as him. He's cool given up a lot of goals and it was only two assists. Uh, that line put together two goals where Brandon Saad picked up the goal, Ryan O'Reilly picked up the goal, and they picked up two assists as well. And a lot of that is coming of, of who Craig Berube's talking about, Josh Levo. Now, he was – the Blues have been searching for a piece – for that line. Jordan Cairo didn't work. Ivan Barbashev wasn't working. They tried Braden Shen there, but they really, frankly, needed depth down the middle for their third line. Um, and so they gave Josh Levo a chance. And Josh Levo was the one they called up once they sent Jake Neighbors to the minors. And look, Josh Levo has had an impact in both games that he has played in. He had the primary assist on that uh, Ryan O'Reilly goal. He picked up an assist uh, against the San Jose Sharks. I believe that was the Brandon Saad goal as well. I'm not saying Josh Levo is going to be the answer to this offensive problems and going to stick together for the rest of the season. But somebody texted in uh, earlier when we were doing in or out and they said in or out Ryan O'Reilly, Josh Levo and Brandon Stodd will stay together for most of the season. I think they're going to stay together for at least the time being. As Tanner just mentioned in his update, that line is sticking together. No changes after the victory from the Vegas Golden Knights. You know that Saad and O'Reilly work well together. Saad goes to the front of the net. Ryan O'Reilly's a puck possessor. But you've always needed somebody who can hold on to the puck and win board battles. Go look at that Ryan O'Reilly goal that was scored against Vegas. Josh Levo gets the puck behind the net, which was a pass from Nico Mikolo along the boards. Levo is able to defend two different Vegas players off of the puck and move it up to Ryan O'Reilly, who's coming in for that shot. That's identical to what David Perron used to do. It's identical, honestly, to what Jaden Schwartz did. Honestly, he reminds me a little of Jaden Schwartz. Josh Levo, he might not be the permanent fix for that line, but he's the temporary fix right now to provide Ryan O'Reilly and Brandon Saad confidence, and that's a benefit for Craig Berube. Yeah, I... Look, this line's been playing well in the two games they've been together. I, actually, I'm just going to say the game against Vegas because I thought they got outplayed against the Sharks. But I kind of you expect that with someone that's n- new up on the line. New and it line was his first game with them. Yeah, so you kind of expect that. But I, I think that this line is going to be one of those where it flares out in like five games. And it goes back to my concerns of, I think we talked about this on Friday. We is, did negative Nancy walk into the room. I know. Well, it was 1230. I figured it was time to change the tone of the show. Um, but, uh, you know, when you... We talked about this on Friday. It was, how concerned are you about Ryan O'Reilly and can they get the line mates up there with him? And they're, the pairing that Craig Berube likes to do where he's got two guys and they fill in that third guy. Right now it's O'Reilly and Sodden who's with him. Right now it's Josh Levo. And look, Levo's played good, but Levo's more of a depth player. I, I still think the Blues are lacking someone that'll go up there with Ryan O'Reilly and help them generate offense. Yeah, they did it against the Vegas Golden Knights, but this feels more of just like a short little burst of, okay, we figured it out for now and then it's going to quickly just tail off that that's my biggest concern with this line because it's not like it's a proven commodity in Josh Levo it's more of a depth forward that is up there kind of filling that spot right now now if Brandon Saad can get back to the level that you expect him and I thought he played great against the Vegas Golden Knights then it's a little easier to have someone like a Josh Levo on that line but right now having him kind of being that solution for Ryan O'Reilly and Brandon Saad I don't know. I'm I'm still very skeptical of if this line's going to continue to be able to generate this kind of offense. I know people don't like this stat because it's hard to to to, to gain reasoning behind it. But Josh Levo's only been a minus once in his NHL career. And it was with when he was with Calgary. And like you the follow up to that is yeah, but he only played what, eight, nine minutes a game. 
No, in his NHL career. Now, granted, it hasn't been very long, but he's had stops in Toronto. He's had stops in Vancouver where he played 49 games, 38 games with Calgary. I mean, he's averaged somewhere between 10 and 14 minutes. I don't think Josh Levo is the permanent answer, but you know what Josh Levo is? Josh Levo is the guy to provide Ryan O'Reilly confidence. And I think that was my biggest concern with Ryan O'Reilly. When you lose your, your PIC, your partner in crime on the ice, you lose some confidence out there. Like if you're Ryan O'Reilly and you don't have David Perron and now you're expected to work with Jordan Cairo, who plays a completely different style, a little bit of a confidence has gone there because you're thinking, all right, well, now I got to defend more because I've got this guy who likes to play in the offensive zone. Then you lose Brandon Saad, and now you're with two guys that you have no idea how to play with. Ryan O'Reilly is probably sitting there going, man, what do I got to do to start getting going? Josh Levo is somebody who at least protects the puck, and I think that's what Craig Berube is searching for. You've got two guys who are top-tier talent on the ice in O'Reilly and Saad, it's just somebody who can win some puck battles. And Kyrou wasn't doing that. Barbashev wasn't doing that. Shen was doing it, but you were suffering elsewhere. So I think at least for now, Josh Levo is a serviceable player to play with these two. And again, like let's not overlook the fact that it's not like this guy's never played in the NHL before. He's got over 200 games in the NHL. His best season is where he scored 10 goals with the Vancouver Canucks on a third line. So maybe you can get some type of magic out of Josh Levo but the important factor is how they play in their own zone. And the comp that BK brought up to us was he asked if that line can be like Minnesota's grief line last season. And for those of you that don't know, the grief line was Jordan Greenway, Joel Erickson, Eck, Marcus Felino from the Minnesota wild. They were a pain in the, in the butt to play against. Um, I don't think that line that line is so far above the Ryan O'Reilly, Brandon Saad, Josh Levo line that I don't think you can compare them. That line last season, they scored 20, or they, they were on the ice for 25 goals for. They allowed five goals against in the regular season last year. Wow. They're, they're just, and they only allowed 39 high danger scoring chances to the opponents on top of the fact that they possessed the, pluck, the puck 54% of the time that they played together. That was a really good line that they could rely on. I don't think that's what this line is, but I do think you can at least get some type of the makings of that line if this team can possess the puck, because that's what it's all about. It's staying in the offensive zone and not allowing the opponent to steal it away from you along the boards. Yeah, I I don't think they can be that grief line. I agree with you there, but can they be like 70% of that? Because that's what the Blues could use. If you give me 50% Corsi 4 from that line, that's a success. Yeah, and and I'm not even really looking at the goals for goal. Well, I'm looking at the goals against because that's a pretty big goal. (laughs) Yeah, that one's pretty big. But if you can just be like 70% of that line where you're not giving up a ton of goal-scoring opportunities, you're possessing the puck, and you are scoring some, at least just more than what you're giving up, which A is the name of the game of hockey, but <laughs> I, I think that's a success then for the Ryan O'Reilly at line because when you, when you look at the Blues, when they're having success, it's when they've got one line that is scoring goals, like the Bujnevich, Tarasenko, Thomas line, and you've got a line that can shut down the opponent's top line. And that was what they had success with last year. Sure, the O'Reilly and Perron line was scoring goals as well, but they were also a very good shutdown line. And right now, I don't know if the Blues truly have a shutdown line because as much as I like the Thomas, Bujnevich, Tarasenko line, I think they're playing well offensively. Defensively, they're giving up a lot of scoring chances for when you look at the numbers. And the fourth line's been good, but you don't really want them out there a lot to in crunch time minutes. So who can become those guys that become the shutdown line mates with Ryan? 
Ryan O'Reilly. And I think Saad can do it a little bit. And then it'd be interesting to see if Levo can continue to do so as well, because they do need a shutdown line, not to the level of the grief line, because that's just insane. Yeah, that was just an incredible season. By the way, they're not even having that same uh, season this year that they were last year. But a lot of it, too, is because they've had a lot of guys injured. Yeah, so you just got to get about what would you say, 50%, 70% of that to where yeah. you feel like you have a shutdown line, and that's what the Blues are building towards. It's not just getting Ryan O'Reilly going offensively, but also finding those linemates that can help him out because you mentioned Kyrou wasn't that guy. He's not going to be a guy that's going to play great defense that's going to shut down the top line from an opponent team like the Colorado Avalanche like tonight. You're going to need guys are going to be willing to kind of fight, grind it out in the offensive zone and shut them down defensively, and we'll see if Levo can continue to do that with Ryan O'Reilly. Yeah, honestly uh, – <laughs> and people are going to laugh at this, the line that I would comp more to the grief line would be Braden Shen's line with Ivan Barbashev and Jordan Cairo. And I'm not saying that Jordan Cairo is going to be good defensively, but what I am saying is that team has more of the makings to hold on to the puck in the offensive zone and have a higher Corsi rating than the O'Reilly line just based off the players and the talent level that's on it. Speaking of talent, one more I wanted to touch on before we get to the junk drawer. Um, are people taking into consideration how good of a season Braden Shen is having right now? Because I don't think so. He's got 12 points, which is tied for the lead on the team with Justin Falk, which that's amazing in itself. But he's only playing 17 minutes and 52 seconds average time on ice. Three goals and nine assists. And, I mean, he's off to one of the better starts he's had in the NHL for Braden, or, or uh, for his time with the St. Louis Blues. And I went back and looked at this because Curbs tweeted this out a few weeks ago, and he went back and revisited that trade with the Philadelphia Flyers to acquire Braden Shen. Get this, T-Bone. So the Blues had traded Yori Laterra and two first-round picks. Those first-round picks were Morgan Frost and Joel Farabee. Combined, the three players that the Flyers got have played 357 games together and have put together a total of 136 points. Braden Shen is at 353 games and has put together 286 points for the Blues. Like, if you look at since he's been with St. Louis, he's the most productive player. He's got more goals than Vladimir Tarasenko. He's got more points than Ryan O'Reilly and Vladimir Tarasenko. He's got more game-winning goals. He's got more power play points. Like, Braden Shen, Braden Shen was the key, in my opinion, to this offense all season long. Last year, when you were wondering where it was, it was because Shen was playing with broken ribs. This season, if you get the other players going... He's got a really good offense because Braden Shen is competing at a, a NHL best. Yeah, he, he looks healthy this year. And that was the biggest thing last year was the health. Where, and we talked about this. Where are you going to get some of that scoring with David Perron departing? And I think part of it was betting on Braden Shen getting back to his normal normal numbers because he's healthy again. And he looks he looks as good as advertised because I, I think he's been the best forward on the team this season so far. Um, he's, to me, Mr. Fix-It this year when – Kyra was going through those struggles. They were yeah. trying to figure out what to do with him. What they do? They put him on a line with Braden Shen. Jake Neighbors, it was only one game, but I thought Jake Neighbors' best game when he was up with the St. Louis Blues was, with was the Shen. season opener when he was with Braden Shen. So I think Braden Shen's kind of taken on the role of Mr. Fix-It for right now for the Blues, and it's a good sign to see. Now, I know Kyra, I think it's been three games, if I'm not mistaken, since they put Kyra with Shen. He's only got a goal and a point in that stretch. But I, what I've seen, the biggest improvement from Jordan Kyra in the last handful of games is that his defense has been better. And I think part of that also comes from being with Braden Shen, Braden Shen and Ivan Barbashev, two guys that are going to grind it out and show Kyra, hey, here's what you got to do if you're going to be on this line with us. And I think that's the biggest thing. And I, and I 
couldn't agree more. I think Braden Shen is going kind of under the radar when you look at this blue season. I think part of that's just because of the struggles that yeah. they had. But he he's arguably been the best forward on the ice for the Blues so far this year. He's Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Alex Ferrario. The Blues will see if they can make it three straight later on this evening when they take on the Colorado Avalanche. The revenge game for Jordan Bennington. Ho, 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 ho. Looking forward to this one. Shut out. I won't say it because I don't want to be the jinx. You just jinxed them. Way to go, man. 8 o'clock puck drop, 7 o'clock pregame here on your home for the Blues 101 ESPN. Coming up at 15 minutes, the Blues also have an issue on one area of their game still. We'll talk about that and we'll get more into that potential trade that Elliot Friedman brought up. But coming up next, we'll dive into the junk drawer here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Let's open it up. The junk drawer with BK and Ferrario. Brought to you by Together Credit Union. Pay yourself with every purchase. Open and achieve a checking account today. George here on BK and Ferrario coming up in 15 minutes. What's gone wrong with this Blues special teams? We'll get into that and the possibility of a potential Blues trade. Kylie McDaniel coming up and 115. T Bone, you like roller coasters? No. No? I hate roller what, coasters. What, what would it take for you to get on a roller coaster? Money. Okay, so money. How much money? Well, because I'm afraid of heights and I'd feel like I'm going to die, I'd say like 300 bucks. Okay, 300 bucks. How much would it take for you to get on this roller coaster? So Disney apparently filed a patent for a roller coaster that jumps tracks. Oh, I'm out. The, look at the picture on this. I'll retweet this on my uh, social media account at Ferrario101ESPN. It literally is like one of those loops oh. that you go on. And at the top of the loop, when you're going around and you're upside down, there's no track. It literally jumps from one end to the other. One, I don't know how you could pass a patent for that roller coaster because you were basically telling individuals, hey, want a chance to not survive a roller coaster ride? Come on. Second, like, Disney's doing that. Disney. Like, I could see Six Flags trying to get away with that, but Disney? That's wild, man. I, uh... I don't know if I would ride that. Oh, I know I wouldn't ride that. Like, how much money would it take you to go on that ride? If they said, I've got a briefcase of a million dollars waiting for you at the end of this ride. Oh, for a million dollars, I'm in. (laughs) Okay. Good to uh, know. Good to know. I'd do almost about anything for a million dollars. I guess that's true. But... I would not. That's so freaking crazy. There's no way. I would not want to do that. I don't know how that would get passed. Because I, I get the... I get like the fear. So I have a fear of heights and I get just going up like stairs. I have that fear of like, I'm going to die. And I would get that fear doing like a roller coaster. I, if I know it's jumping, I would probably black out. Speaking of fear of heights, this has nothing to do with it. It kind of does. So I watched that movie. Has anybody seen the fall? It's a movie that came out a couple of months ago. Essentially what it is, is these two like thrill seekers. They climb this like world's tallest pole or something like that. And I don't want to give it away, but I would imagine you probably know where this goes. They got stuck on it. No, I had so much anxiety watching like my wife and I watched it. My feet were sweating. Like I, I had the anxiety of just watching a movie about heights. So I can only imagine what I'd be feeling like if I'm riding a roller coaster that I know is going to take a track jump at some point. I, 
That's freaking insane. Heights and me just don't no. get along. What do you I, got, T-Bone? All right, so you know like the massage chairs that you see at um, like outlet malls and they've, they've oh, got yeah, like where the... Where random people like, just sit down? Yeah, where they can like clap, they can, they'll like wrap around your leg and they'll like massage your leg, up and down your leg and massage your foot. Well, I saw a story where, uh, I think it's in Texas if I remember correctly, where the thing broke while it was like mid-class on some <laughs> lady's leg. And so she called the fire department and the fire department came out. And you know what they had to use to get her out of it? The jaws of life. The jaws of life they on a massage the, chair. Was this in a mall? Yeah. What? How did you get the jaws of life in the mall? Aren't those things pretty freaking no, heavy? I, I think they're, well, I think it's like two guys could carry it or something. Oh. I don't think, I don't think it's like, oh crap, can't fit it through the door. Oh, you got to have the chair on you for life. How, how do you get stuck in a massage chair? I, I imagine the story too. Like. But like it's it can't be that hard to to, to pry open, right? Oh, I don't know. I mean, those things use pretty good force, and if they get stuck there, I can and see how big is your leg that you can't like slide it out. I, I was just saying, well, I, I think it's like pinned at this point. I guess. I but I saw this story. I was like, I I could never go into a mall again. In fact, I probably could never I leave would the never house use again. Use a massage chair again. Oh, I you know I would learn my lesson there too. But I've I got claustrophobia. People would see me and go, "That's the guy that got stuck in a massage chair." Like, I'd have that on my resume. Like. I think I'd have to quit my job. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't survive with BK and I if you got stuck in a massage chair. Although BK also had a uh, food processor hit him in the head, so yeah, well, don't find ways to surprise with yeah, that one. Amazing, he came to work the next day. Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Alex Ferrario. We'll take a break. Coming up at 15, we've got Kylie McDaniel, MLB Insider for ESPN. But coming up next, what the heck is going on with this Blues power play? We'll get into that and a potential trade for St. Louis next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. There's some good looks. Um, Sometimes they don't go in, you know, but I think overall, you know, they moved it around, around and they did what we asked them to do. You know, their flank shots, they're, they're going to give up those, and their goalie made some saves, and we didn't get any puck luck on rebounds. That was Craig Berube after the Blues victory against the Vegas Golden Knights Saturday. It's BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Alex Ferrario. And, of course, Berube talking about the power play there that went 0 for 4 on Saturday. They're 2 for 18 on the power play in their last six games. They started the season 1 for 3 with that power play goal against the Columbus Blue Jackets. They went 0 for 3 against Seattle, 1 for 1 against Edmonton. That was in their three-game win streak. And then in the losing streak, I mean, they had a case games where they'd pick up a power play goal but it'd be one for three there'd be oh for fours there'd be one for fours the blues are getting their power play chances but they're not scoring on them and i think what's frustrating about it, and i heard jr talk about this with uh the the fellas on the balloon party this morning he's like if you go back in that eight game losing streak there were games that were dictated by the power play. Like you could have scored a power play goal and you're probably talking about a different outcome. The LA Kings game where you were already leading and you could have kind of put the, as Doug Armstrong puts it, the knife and the brain and kill the opponent off. Uh, you had the same thing against the New York Islanders. You had the chance against the Boston Bruins. And in all reality, I know you won the game, but you had it against Vegas because you scored that goal. And then seconds later, you had a power play that you didn't score on. And then the third period was the part that, to me, I looked at Grant Francis, our producer for Blues games, and I said, the Blues might lose this game because you missed on three power or two power plays in the first five minutes of the game. 
I mean, for you, T-Bone, what do you think's going on with this power play right now? Well, I, I think it's kind of twofold. I, I think, one, they're missing a legitimate one-timer that's a threat. Like, right now, I don't see anybody that has that shot. I know they try with a couple guys like Buchnevich, Braden Shen's been there a little bit, Robert Thomas and Jordan Cairo are now those guys that are sitting on that outside. But I don't think any of those guys truly have a one-timer that you fear. Maybe Buchnevich because we saw it a little bit earlier in the year. But they don't use them there, which is so weird. Yeah, I, I, I think part of it is you're missing a one-timer. And then the other thing, we were talking about this um, when we were up in the press box for the game on Thursday when they beat the San Jose Sharks. It doesn't feel like when I when you watch a power play like last year's, it kind of felt kind of not only did they have the one-timer it was a threat, but it felt kind of um, constricting. And what I mean by that is like, they start on the outside, and then they slowly start to work their way in, and you kind of get the defenders that are brought down, and it leads to more passes and they're more um, higher danger opportunities. Now it all just feels on the outside. Like Every time I'm watching the power play, it just feels like the puck's always like right there on the boards or it's right there on the blue line. It's not constricting. It doesn't feel like it's kind of pulling the opponent yeah. in, and I think that's part of the issue as well with the power play. I think it's something that they're going to right the ship a little bit. I don't think the power play is going to be where it was last year, which I think is a bit of a... Uh, bad sign for the Blues because I'm not sure they're five on five scorings at the level it was last year. Yeah. And if you take away part of the power play as well, then your scoring's really going to go down. So I think that's part of the issue for this team. I, I do think they need to find a way to get more kind of kind of pull in a little bit more on that power play instead of playing from the outside as much. <laughs> Excuse me. My <laughs> gosh. It's emotional, man. <laughs> and, and find somebody that's got a um, one-timer that you can rely on, whether it be Buchnevich, Kyra, whoever finds whoever you find to have that shot. That's what I think they're missing on this power play. Yeah, so so it, to me, it's it's the one-time threat. I, I mean, you are missing David Perron there. And I understand you're missing David Perron, and people are like, yeah, you're going to just sign David Perron. But more than anything, what they're missing is they're that, that one-time shot from the left side. And look, David Perron was a righty, so he was able to set up shop there and take the shots. Mike Hoffman, we all remember how great Mike Hoffman was on the power play. He was a lefty. He was able to set up shop on the near side boards and wait for that one-time pass. So... They, they're in desperate need of that one-time shot because they got, got a, lot of, a lot of guys now that when the puck's on their tape, they like to, as hockey players say, they like to dust it off a little bit. They have to get it set before they can release it, and by that, goaltender's getting across the crease. Let's look at the top power plays in the NHL. Colorado Avalanche have a 39% the best in the NHL. Their one-time threat is Miko Rantanen. The Edmonton Oilers, their one-time threat is Leon Dreisaitl, who's the second-best power play in the NHL. Dallas has got Jason Robertson. Uh, I don't know how the heck this is, but the Arizona Coyotes have the fourth-best power play right now they've in the NHL. they got that one college kid. Got no idea who they have in that spot. Toronto's got Austin Matthews. They've got Mitch Marner. Um, and Boston's got David Pasternak. All of these guys have those one-time options. That's what you're missing. If you want to fix the power play, it's a one-time threat. And... To be honest with you, I think your best options are Braden Chen and Pavel Buchnevich. The problem is those guys are separated on two different power plays. So you've got to find the one that can match. Vladdy's the one that sets up as that one-time threat, but it's just not working from that shot. You've got to get Buchnevich there, but then who's going to be the bumper in the middle? Because Robert Thomas has floated around as that shot on the wing also. So that, I think, is the biggest strategy and hiccup for Craig McTavish and or I'm sorry, Steve Ott and Craig Berube when it comes to managing this power play. Would you consider going back? And I know they tried this for a very brief stint. I think it was when both Buchnevich and Saad were out going back to on that second unit with two defensemen on it. Cause I think they had, if I remember correctly, it was Pareko was 
the point man, and then they had Falk as one of those guys that would set up for the one-timer. Do, yeah. you, do you think they would consider going back to that? Because I, I don't think they would, Falk's but I think it's one, interesting. Falk's the one-timer, so I mean, what you could do is you could put two defensemen out there and not have Pareko as the one-timer. You could move Falk into that forward position and have Pareko just be the defenseman on the blue line. But, I mean, it's rare to see teams in the NHL use two defensemen. So maybe that's a possibility for him. And I know I asked Joey that last week, and, and he said, like, yeah, maybe you experiment with it. But the problem is Colton Pareko's one-time shots are so sporadic that you need to start hitting the net. And that's the other problem with the power play is it takes you so it's long to get set up. Too. Yeah, you miss the net a lot, which is hurting this team um, in that space. But maybe the Blues can fix their power play through a trade, right? That's how you fix things, right? If you're yeah. a fan, you're just thinking, I just trade this person. You it can make it happen. Video game. It works in real life. Well, it's not just fans that are saying it. It's also Elliot Friedman on the 32 Thoughts podcast. You know, I heard this week the Flames have been looking around for a scoring forward. I've been told that's been going on since August, so I don't think there's anything pressing on that one right now. I do think if there's a team to keep an eye on right now, it might be St. Louis. So here's the thing. You hear that and you're like, oh, baby, they're going to make a trade with Calgary. I, I think it's too premature to say that, but I do think that, look, the Blues are going to be aggressive if they feel like they got a team. You're not going to see a trade until Doug Armstrong gets a better idea of what this team is. He just had an eight-game losing streak. It's hard to sit here and imagine that, you know what, they're going to go out there and say, let's make a trade. I, I think what this is now, it's the evaluation period. It's pretty obvious that your weak spot is another winger to play with Ryan O'Reilly, and it's pretty obvious your weak spot is finding a power play threat. I don't know if there's any of those guys on Calgary that you can legitimately make a trade for. That's two teams that are cap strung that would have to basically make dollar in dollar out of hockey trade. Um, and the blues, I mean, like look at the Calgary flames. Who do you want? Because oh, I want Uyghur. Yeah. You want Huberdo? Sure. I'll take Huberdo. Not going to happen. So like your options for them would probably be, I've heard Dylan Dubé's name brought up. I don't think he's a power play threat for you. Um, you could get, um, Tyler Toffoli, but that's four and a half million dollars that you're going to have to trade off of your roster. And in that case, who are you plucking off of your roster? Because don't throw the, oh, we'll just trade one of your defensemen. That's not how this works. So I don't think there's a trade to be made now. I think there could be a trade to be made in the future. And you always look at the teams that are struggling like Calgary that need to switch things up a little bit. Yeah, I I don't think there's anything to be done now. I, I kind of agree with you. I think this was just kind of premature talks from the Calgary Flames if they reached out to the St. Louis Blues, whether it be swapping guys out or see, seeing if they if the Blues were actually going into this rebuild and see if they wanted to kick started. And I think Army just wants to hold on to all the pieces. Again, I, I think the Blues are going to be one of those deadline teams that you're not truly going to know what the Blues' plans are come trade the deadline until you get to like the day before or the day of the deadline. I Because this is a team that Doug Armstrong does not truly want to blow up, but he will if he has to. And he's going to stick with this group as long as possible. And to your point, I don't know if there's really anybody on the Flames that excites me. Maybe Toffoli, but I, I if that's the case, you said four and a half million. That's probably swapping him for Barbie. And I just don't know if like if does that make your team better? Well, not only that, but if you look at it from the Calgary Flames perspective, they're looking for goal scoring. Is Barbie really the guy that they're going to be targeting? Probably not. If right. I had to guess, so I, I, I mean, does he make you better? Maybe, maybe he helps out on the power play. But I just don't see it in terms of a logical standpoint from the Calgary Flames perspective as well. Yeah, well, and you're at the point now where I think like if you want to if you want to make a trade, you're going to have to wait until you get closer to December because other teams aren't going to be willing to make a trade until you get to that point and you got to figure out what your weak spots are. But I do think it's pretty evident that they're going to need help on that power play. You're going to need a power play threat. And I know everyone's just going to say, well, you should have just signed David Perron. 
They've moved past that. Now you've, you've got an opportunity. If you think your team is legitimately good, which again, that's what time is going to tell you if your team can withstand uh, the NHL and you're going to find out the rest of this, but like the month of the, the rest of the month of November, I think is going to give you a perfect idea of what this team is because you've got Colorado, you've got Washington, you've got Buffalo, you've got Dallas, you've got a lot of tough teams. If you come out of November with a winning record, then I think you get at the point where you can say, all right, how are we going to upgrade this team? But until then, I still think it's too premature to act like a trade can fix anything. Do you think, I'll bring this up real quick because I know we got to get out of here. Do you think if we come to the deadline and the Blues are adding, I think we all agree they're probably one forward short in the top nine. Does he have to be a power play specialist or is it just let's get a guy and then we'll continue to figure out the power play? And I know this is pretty early talk. I I think you're going to look for a guy who's got a one-time shot. And I saw a report out there that brought up Mike Hoffman's name, and they've been down that road. That ain't going to happen. But it's going to be somebody who they'll look at it and they'll say, we got to find somebody who can play with Ryan O'Reilly and who's a one-time threat. That's what their criteria criteria would be. Look at how Colorado did it last trade deadline. They needed a defensive forward who could play in their top nine, and they went and got Arturi Lekkinen from Montreal. That's what you're going to be searching for, and that you kind of have to wait to find out how it's going to work uh, until you get to about December. Uh, Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Alex Ferrario. Coming up in 15 minutes, we've got our NFL quick hitters after a wild NFL Week 10, but coming up next, Kylie McDaniel, MLB insider for ESPN, is going to join us to talk offseason next year on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. Alongside Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Alex Ferrario. No BK with us today. Hopefully be back with us tomorrow. It is BK and Ferrario here on 101 ESPN. And we now head to our Brown and Crouppen celebrity line to welcome in one of my favorites, Kylie McDaniel, a baseball insider for ESPN. Kylie, appreciate the time. How are you today, buddy? Love to be on the celebrity line. Thanks for having me. Celebrity line's always a good one. Let's uh, let's look big picture here, Kylie. Once the GM meetings wrapped up in Las Vegas, what were your main takeaways around baseball? So it seems like the free agent market hasn't totally uh, unthawed yet. I think a lot of teams, uh, it's similar to last year. There's a lot of teams that have a lot of money and want to upgrade their team, and so I think the players and agents are sort of salivating, waiting to see what those huge deals will be. Last year, Corey Seager and Marcus Simeon, both Boris clients, had quick early deals uh, for a collective over $500 million in Texas. I think the question is, who comes off the board first? Is there a team like Texas willing to sort of overpay at the top of the market multiple times? Uh, Does Aaron Judge go quickly? Uh, Is Carlos Correa going to wait until the end? Is Boston aggressively going to keep Sandra Bogarts? Or is he going to hit the market? Is Atlanta going to try to keep Dansby Swanson quickly or let him hit the market? We don't quite know how those pieces are going to position themselves. So I don't think any teams, or I don't think many teams are ready to pull the trigger just yet. But I think once it gets going, it'll go pretty quickly. Well, some some moves that we've seen, Kylie, have been the relief market. The relief market is off and running a little bit. You've got Rafael Montero, who signed the three-year deal back with Houston. You've got Robert Suarez that re-upped with San Diego. Uh, has the relief market been a little bit surprising to you to see the contracts that these guys have been given? And do you think that that's going to be something that's going to continue to be a trend as we go in this offseason? Yeah, typically what will happen is the early deals tend to be more than the, the experts, I guess, including myself, uh, 
predict. And then late is when you see a lot of the one-year deals on the guys that don't quite get what they're expecting and go below the market. So it's not surprising that the early deals were higher than projections. Edwin Diaz's deal was almost exactly what I had predict- projected just because we knew he was the best reliever coming off one of the best relief seasons in recent memory, and Steve Cohen really wanted him. So you kind of priced in the markup, and that's kind of what happened. Uh, Montero and um, uh, Suarez were both like surprising, but also if you told me they were going to be the next two guys off the board, I would have rounded up on my projections. Um, so, so those aren't like shocking. And also, I think the other part is the the big ticket position players are who get the huge money and who the teams are really focused on. Relievers are the kind of players that winning teams that have good. Uh, relievers don't mind letting them walk because they think they can find the next one and investing multiple years in a reliever, especially if they're over 30 or don't throw really hard, uh, tend to not be very good investments. So they also make sense as the ones that are kind of moving first. Kylie, does a reliever make sense? A high-end reliever makes sense for the Cardinals this offseason? We've, we've talked a lot about going after pitching, and we've brought up looking for the top end of the rotation guy, but it's going to be hard to get into a bidding war for uh, Justin Verlander or Jacob deGrom. So do you see this team kind of segueing into a high-end reliever well i think with helsley and gallegos like they they both seem to give you what you need if you just sort of like think of like the the rubric of like what do most of these successful playoff teams that get deep in the postseason have and you got to have you know a couple good starters but like a lot of depth to go to get through the whole season you gotta have a couple sort of ace relievers that can make it through the season ideally some prospects on the come and you can't really have a hole in your lineup with like a couple guys that stand out and the cardinals kind of have most of those things in place like they're not very far off and I think the resurgent system is giving them that sort of free depth where they don't have to sign a bunch of, um, you know, possibly down on their luck older guys to be the depth throughout the season. You got young guys coming up. So then the question is how much money do they have? Where do they want to spend it? I don't think there's necessarily a ton of money to spend unless they're just going to really raise the payroll next year. Um, but I also don't see like a glaring hole. So usually what will happen if a team doesn't have a glaring hole and they got some money to spend is they'll spend it on a reliever on a one or two year deal. And it's just sort of low risk. If, um, you know, there's various ways to work around it. I don't necessarily see this team spending nine figures on a free agent this year. So yeah, the easiest thing to do would be one or two years on a pretty good free agent uh, reliever that like makes some sense, but I don't think there's necessarily like a huge glaring need here, which I think is sort of the strength of the team. You don't have that one thing you have to get. Well, with that being said, Kylie, is there like a free agent that you look at that you say is a uh, someone that you like as a great fit for the St. Louis Cardinals? Because with them not having a whole lot of needs, we're kind of with you there. The only thing that we know they're going to add is a catcher. Is there someone that just overall, when you look at the free agent landscape, that you go, he's the perfect Cardinal that they should be targeting this offseason? Yeah, it's it, the catcher market especially is interesting because Gary Sanchez and Wilson Contreras may be the two like name brand successful catchers that are not the greatest defensive catchers, which is definitely not like the Cardinals brand of catcher. Those are two of the three biggest uh, projected contracts I have, and I don't think those guys are necessarily fits. Uh, Christian Vasquez is the other guy in that group who is a good defensive catcher. So I think you know if you want to go to sort of the top of the market of guys that make sense in the catcher group, Christian Vasquez makes a lot of sense. And then in the relief market, I would just say whichever of that sort of mid-tier of guy, I'm looking at my list right now, uh, there's some guys like Matt Moore, Nick Martinez, Chris Martin that I think are probably like two years, maybe three, you know, seven to ten million, like that kind of area. Uh, I think those guys could make some sense, especially if one of them ends up coming in below that. Kenley Jansen on a one-year deal. I think, obviously, he's been on a lot of playoff teams. I think you can plug and play him late late in the uh, game, and he'll kind of give you what you need. Um, I think those kinds of guys uh, sort of make sense for what they're looking for. But, I, you know, I also think, like, you don't want to add too many. I don't think you're suggesting this. But you don't add too many players, especially, like, in the infield. 
I'd be interested to see how that like group sort of sorts itself out and and who fits where and then maybe at the deadline deal with whatever the hole is if there happens to be one. Kylie, I think the big thing, and again, we're talking with Kylie McDaniel, ESPN uh, Major League Baseball insider here on BK and Ferrario. Kylie, the big thing for me this offseason was getting a, a quality bat to go in there with Nolan Arenado and Paul Goldschmidt. And I thought it was going to be the shortstops, and it doesn't seem like they're going at that market. It's not going to be Aaron Judge. Do you believe that that quality bat can be from the catcher position if they make a trade for um, the, the the catcher from Oakland, which names is completely passing me right now? Sean Murphy. Sean Murphy, thank you. Or any of the catchers from Toronto? Yeah, Murphy in a trade actually makes a lot of sense because you would say that the weakest spot of the lineup, which I, I think is like good and deep, but maybe uh, doesn't have that that like third superstar behind uh, Goldschmidt and Arenado. Although Tommy Edmond obviously had a season uh, of that of that caliber, uh, catcher would I think be the sort of lowest hanging fruit. Like I said, there's not that guy that I think fits what the Cardinals are trying to do behind the plate. I think Murphy does. And I think the sort of strength of the organization right now relative to past years is there is a lot of depth of like top 100 to 150 kind of prospects, which is exactly what Oakland would be looking for. Uh, Because they also have Shea Langoliers coming up who uh, they got from Atlanta in the Matt Olson trade. So they kind of want to make way for their next guy now that Olson has, I believe, two years of control left. So that would actually make a lot of sense to, you know, take a, a collection of some of these guys that are, you know, are probably like everyday guys, maybe uh, maybe roll four or like sort of platoon back end starter setup guys like those kinds of young players, especially in the upper minors is what Oakland is probably looking for and flip those for a couple of years of Sean Murphy. Like that would make a lot of sense and wouldn't add a lot of money to the payroll and sort of maintain that flexibility. Kelly, I, I want to hone in on one of the shortstops on the market. I agree with what Alex said earlier that the shortstops, probably the Cardinals won't be there but one of them that I think if they are going to make that signing at a shortstop position it might be Dansby Swanson and this is kind of a two-part question for you here you've got him projected at contract to six years 150 million dollars one would you would you be willing to jump on that if you're the Cardinals do you think that's a good deal for the St. Louis Cardinals and my second question is last year when we talked about the shortstop market we said someone's going to have to kind of fall through the cracks to come to the Cardinals and the guy that we circled was Trevor Story maybe takes the one-year deal to uh, re-up his market the following year. He ended up not doing that. None of the shortstops really did. Do you think one of these shortstops will do that this year, possibly, if they potentially fall through their cat cracks, just go with a one-year deal? Yeah, I mean, you could argue Correa did. I think he signed a deal that was set up to be, if I have a terrible year, I get hurt. I have the multi-year um, you know, big money commitment, $100 million, uh, plus from Minnesota, but the plan is to hit the market again. Um, so he sort of re-upped. Uh, or re up like he got a contract and then hit the market again. I think now he's going to be 250 plus. I think Turner's going to be 250 plus. I think Bogert is probably not better defensively than the options he have. He's just another good infielder, which is kind of what the Cardinals already have. And I think he's going to be 150 plus. And so I think you're right to sort of zero in on Swanson. Seems a little more like the Cardinals style of player addresses the exact issue they have, which is let's have like a really steady every year defensive. Uh, uh, type that is not going to be 30, 40 million a year kind of player. So I think he does fit that. I think that price and that, you know, it's in the same area again as the Freddie Freeman uh, contract that Atlanta moved, moved away from different sort of player. I wonder if they now approach it differently, but I think anywhere from like 130 to 175 is probably like his market, obviously 150 right there in the middle. I think most teams like that player at that level. And the question is, uh, the sort of uh, the peak for baseball players tends to be ages 26 to 28. Obviously, a lot of exceptions around that, but that tends to be where it is. Danzy Swanson just had his best season at age 28, and he is a lot of his value comes from speed and defense, which tend to peak earlier than offensive skills. So, can he replicate what he did last year? Was last year a little bit of a fluke? Maybe. And is he going to be in the decline and not even be a shortstop at the end of that six year deal? These are all 
good questions. Uh, not that any of these guys seem like they are, you know, without risk when you start talking about those nine figure deals. And again, St. Louis is in a spot where like, they don't have to add an infielder. If you, you know, there's an argument that like their DH spot is just going to be one of the extra infielders. Uh, and you also have Mason one and Jordan Walker coming um, in addition, to obviously having like two MVP candidates at the corner. So like, I would say I probably wouldn't do it because I don't think they need a player so bad that they then want to get into a nine figure commitment. But if you're going to, I think Swanson is, uh, you know, one of the best bets in that area. Cause he's going to come in at the bottom of that group and with the sort of leadership positional uh, all those sorts of things he brings to the table that some of the other guys don't I think is sort of the best bet to be a solid everyday guy for the entire length of the contract and you avoid having that big sink uh, Kylie a couple more questions with Kylie McDaniel of ESPN MLB insider with us uh, we've talked a lot about the lefty bat and that need for the Cardinals how impactful do you think the the shift ban is going to be on those lefty bats this offseason yeah, I tweeted about that last week uh, after I was hearing some of the same stuff that my colleague Buster only was. Uh, I was surprised to see, as an example of this, that Jock Peterson got the qualifying offer from the Giants. He had been what looked like a good everyday player and then had two straight years of looking like a platoon guy, reserve that can't really play defense, almost like a pinch hitter, like playoff type guy. And then last year was really good, but he's also like still below average defensively and has passed those peak years. So you're like, eh, even if that was real, how long is he going to keep this up? And I had him projected for, I think it was like two times 12, like, you know, uh, 12, 12 million a year as like a low end everyday guy. And you hope that he can do it for two more years. And then he gets offered the qualifying offer at almost 20 million for one year. And then I was told, yeah, he has three year offers. Like teams are showing interest at that level. <laughs> and I'm like, really? And then they said the same thing to me. They said the buster, which is because of the shift, this applies to Anthony Rizzo, some of these other guys that are somewhat one dimensional as bat only type guys. They now will hit for more average. Their BABIP goes up. All the underlying, you know, strikeouts and walks may look similar, but they're just going to have better results. And so now all the left-handed hitters is like a rising tide. Teams are willing to go longer on them and, and sort of find a role for them. So I think that's, happening and so this is probably not the best year to be hitting the market saying we need a left-handed bat because the price just went up on all of them kylie final one i wanted to ask you is about the starting pitching market i kind of mentioned earlier about finding that top end of the rotation pitcher which is something that a lot of people have said the cardinals are looking for i don't think it's going to be via free agency we've now heard that shane bieber is not going to be traded what are you hearing with tyler glass now in the tampa bay rays yeah, that's an interesting one just because Tampa is like such a outlier in how they approach young players, which is uh, if you are not a difference maker and you're in arbitration, we're looking to trade you. And Glass now seems to have been a bit of an exception to that, that they're sort of guaranteeing him big money at the end of arbitration. And I, you kind of wonder, are they going to approach him the same way they approach Blake Snell? Where is it like once we get toward the end of our control over you at a reasonable price and the free agent market is coming and you're going to get paid 20 million plus and we don't think you're that guy because they think almost nobody is that guy for like the kind of <laughs> players they're trying to get. Are they then just available for whichever team wants to put together a three to four player package, which obviously St. Louis is in a position to maybe be at the front of that list because they have the most ammunition to make that kind of trade. So while I haven't heard anything specifically about they're looking to move this guy, uh, Tampa Bay actually will be very active because tomorrow they have to submit their 40 man roster and they have way too many guys that need to be added and not enough room. So they're probably going to make like three or four trades in the next 24 hours. I don't think Tyler Glasnow is going to be one of them, but they are one of the teams that at the GM meetings, when I'm asking around, what are they, you know, what's going on out there? Uh, Tampa's making a bunch of calls, trying to figure out where everybody stands on all their players is like the one thing that everybody said. So they're going to be so active that I would imagine in the next, you know, 12 months of them doing something with him makes a lot of sense. I wonder if they want to wait until he can put together like a good 10, 12 start period and then have that uh, sort of crescendo in his value before it then drops because he's about to hit 
free agency if that's how this plays out instead of doing it this offseason when he's only had six innings uh, post-TJ. Yeah, that makes the most sense. He's Kylie McDaniel, ESPN Major League Baseball Insider. Follow him on Twitter at KylieMCD. Always appreciate the time, buddy. Thank you so much, and I'm sure we'll talk with you again as the hot stove continues to get hotter. Yep, thanks for having me. There you go, Kylie McDaniel with us here on uh, ESPN. And uh, the Tyler Glassnow one we brought up to Katie Wu, we brought up to Kylie McDaniel, and a lot of that BK has been right. I mean, that's one that you'd be interested in if he's available. Obviously, the injuries are there, but that makes the most sense, especially if you're Tampa T-Bone. Why would you trade a guy who's at his lowest when you could trade him at his highest if he comes back and is healthy for them this upcoming season? Yeah, I it does make a lot of sense when when he brought that up. That that seems like the best move from the Tampa Bay Rays perspective is that crescendo. Get the twelve start period, and then what happens? Everybody needs starting pitching once you get closer and closer mm-hmm. to the trade deadline. Really pique the interest of a lot of teams that will be able to make moves. Maybe that is when the Cardinals would make a move like that. Maybe they're dealing with an injury. Maybe somebody got hurt. Maybe somebody's underperforming. And as he said, they've got a ton of ammunition to the Cardinals in their prospect pool that they can move on from some of those guys and potentially make a trade. I, I'll be interested because he mentioned Tampa Bay's going to be making a lot of deals in the next 24 hours. They've got a couple relievers. Maybe the Cardinals will have interest on those guys. Maybe that's what they do. I don't know if it'll be the like Tyler O'Neill for a reliever, yeah. but you give up a lower-end prospect. I don't know if it's as high as someone as Joshua Bias, but someone in the lower minor leagues that you trade for and get a high-end reliever. Because, again, Tampa Bay's got so many guys that are intriguing, to say the least. Would you would you listen if they called about Randy Rosarena? I, I would. I, I think the Cardinals need an everyday outfit. I don't think Randy Rosarena is that guy. Speed, um, defense, big bat, power. You could probably put him batting second for you. Yeah, I, I would definitely have interest if they called, but I, I, I he may be a little too quote-unquote pricey for the Cardinals because I think they'll say, well, we don't want Randy Rosarena. We'll continue to run with what we have because we think our upside's bigger than Tyler O'Neill. I don't think they Which would trade the a case. Rosarena, too. Yeah, that's the thing. I, I'm not sure Tampa's looking to move him this offseason. I think what they're just looking to do right now is move a couple bullpen arms because they're still a very competitive team in a very difficult AL East. Yeah, well, and we already saw, I believe they were the ones that traded He-Man Choi um, over to Pittsburgh yeah. over the weekend. So you're already kind of seeing them start trading pieces away from their roster. He's Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Alex Ferrario. Coming up in 15 minutes, we've got our BK and Ferrario Rewind, and we've got your chance to win tickets to see Thomas Rhett. So we'll get to that at about 145. But coming up next, NFL Quick Hitters here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the BK and Ferrario podcast, presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. chance to win Thomas Rhett tickets. If you want that shot, stay tuned. At the end of this segment, we'll give you the question that you've got to answer. But before we get to that, let's get to our NFL quick hitters. And let's start with the two biggest and probably most entertaining games of week 10. And it was two overtime games, the Bills against the Vikings and the Cowboys against the Packers. So out of those two games, T-Bone, which OT game left you with bigger questions surrounding the losing team? I think mine's probably the Cowboys because I, I know that the Bills lost that game, but that was more of a just complete collapse. And I think they'll ultimately end up being fine. The Cowboys, I still had some questions about them. And especially when you're going against a Green Bay's team. Look, it's not like the Bills lost to a bad team. Minnesota's a legit team. We got to take them serious. Now how'd that, that, how'd that, that feel game. to say? It kind of hurt a little bit, actually. You like that? Um, but the Packers stink. <laughs> they do stink. They're awful. And yet the 
Cowboys blew a lead to them and then lost in overtime. So I think it tells you more about the Cowboys that are they? I, I don't think they're at the level that I thought they were. I thought they were like the second or third best team in the NFC. Now I look at them and I think, you know what? They're, they showed that they're beatable and they kind of fall back towards the middle of the pack, in my opinion. I think we learn more about the Cowboys in the negative way than we did in the Bills. Absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm concerned about this Cowboys team now. They obviously can't stop the run. Like, I, I thought that this was a defense overall that was probably going to lead them on a deep run into the postseason. I thought with Micah Parsons and when you've when you got uh, Demarcus Lawrence and when you've got the deep, the front defense that they've got, Van Der Esch also, you're thinking, all right, who's going to stop this team? And then the secondary is so good, they got exploited by Green Bay. And, and honestly, I took Green Bay for granted for how bad they've been. But Aaron Rodgers was right what he said on the Pat McAfee show where he said, I am the reigning two-time MVP. Nah, he still stinks. I tell you what, if, if they found some recipe for success in getting Christian Watson involved and then using the running game like that, I don't think they're a playoff team still. I, I think they're going to miss out, but I, I guess never say never in that division. But yeah, it absolutely is the Cowboys because now I'm, I'm concerned about their defense. I'm concerned about Dak Prescott, who made a couple of just really bad play calls that threw right into the middle of defenders. Oh, you the Cooper Russia. I might. Again? I mean, the guy was successful, right? And then who would have thought Ezekiel Elliott was that important to the team? I know Tony Pollard had a good week, but I mean, you don't have Ezekiel Elliott, and team finally starts losing. So um, they're the team that I think you get the biggest question. And T Bone, you mentioned it. Is it time to start taking this Vikings team serious? Yeah. Uh, after that win, and again, I think that was a complete choke job from the Buffalo Bills. They should have won that game. And I know we got a texture that's going to tell me how great Kirk Cousins is. See, that's the thing, Kirk though. Cousins didn't play that great in that game until the very end, and Justin Jefferson bailed him out late Kirk, with that, mat, yeah, that awesome catch. Kirk Cousins almost lost that game for them. He had the ball in his hands twice with the game on the line, and he threw it right into an interception. And, and like... Th- Look, I, I, I think you believe in the Vikings, but the Vikings did everything they could to lose that game. All, all Buffalo needed to do was not fumble that ball on the snap, and we're talking about the Vikings not being able to perform on the big stage. They, they still remind me, and again, I think you can take them as a threat now in the NFC with that win against the Bills, because that's a really good team they just beat on the road. But they remind me so much of the Tennessee Titans from last year. Not in their style of play, but it's like, okay, I see that they're one of the top teams in the conference, Yet I'm on pins and needles because I know at some point the quarterback's going to do something that I know is going to backfire for them. That's what I thought last year with Ryan Tannehill. I never truly trusted Ryan Tannehill. And in the playoffs, I need to trust your quarterback for me to believe in you to go on a run. And I feel the exact same way with the Minnesota Vikings. I think they win maybe a round, maybe two, but I don't think they're coming out of the NFC because I just don't trust Kirk Cousins enough. That's what I was going to look at. And I don't even think you can actually like see how the matchups play right now. But like you would imagine they're... There's there's two buys, correct? No, just, the, just one. the one buy. So you're chasing down the Eagles. I, I would say the Eagles are going to get that buy. So you're talking about probably taking on. I mean, right now they would be hosting the San Francisco 49ers. So I would give the Vikings the edge in that one. Oh, see, I would take San Francisco. Really? I and it's not because I trust Jimmy G over. I don't Kirk trust Cousins. Jimmy G. He's just got more, a ton of weapons around him. Yeah. See, I think they could win that round, but then you're getting into the taking on either Seattle or the Giants. And that I'm not sure about. And I can't believe I just said that about the Giants, but the Giants defense has actually given me a lot of belief that they can find a way to eliminate. Like, again, I, I get it. I'm going to bash on Kirk Cousins again with a team that's one of the best in, the, in football right now. But, like, Kirk Cousins did everything he could to lose that game. Speaking of losing the game, Josh McDaniels 
might honestly be the worst head coach in, in the NFL. And I'm saying that because I don't like Nathaniel Hackett with Denver, which, by the way, again, struggled at scoring. But Josh, Josh McDaniels just lost to a head coach who was hired three days before their game and has only coached at the high school level. And Josh McDaniels laid an egg against the Indianapolis and Colts. His quarterback crying at the presser. Uh, uh, yes. How is Vegas... How, do, how has Vegas not fired McDaniels when Colts fired Frank Reich already? I I don't know. <laughs> I He'll be a one and done. Like, I don't know how you can return with. I think this is one of those where it's like, it's tough to change a coach in season. And look, their playoff hopes are done. They could do it anyways. This feels like one of those where it's just, let's play this out. And then at the end of the year, let's just move on. Because losing to Jeff Saturday. Hey, look, good for him. Wait, good job for him to wake up the Colts and get them to play a game and actually win and look like a competent team somewhat. I I think looking at that, you look at Josh McDaniels and go, "Man, he's got to go." Like, you he cannot you cannot lose to a coach who at the highest level was coaching high school and he went 3 and 7 in his one year doing it. That it's a bad loss for Vegas. I didn't think they looked all that prepared honestly for the matchup. I think Josh McDaniels is going to be one and done. He'll probably be back in Tampa Bay next year as an offensive coordinator or an offensive assistant. Or it'll be like in Alabama and do whatever those guys do when they get fired where they're offensive consultants or something like that. But he, he's done. I, I don't see him coming back next year. I mean, you got such a good offense with, with Devontae Adams on it and with Josh Jacobs, who had a great game. And, like, I understand your, your quarterback, Derek Carr, might not be the best. But, like, we've seen him have winning seasons and be co- competent in the past couple of seasons. It's just, it's bad. Like, Josh McDaniels. Is an awesome offensive coordinator, a terrible head coach. And I think you learned that after this week. And we got a text here from the 636. Is this the Kirk Cousins? No, this is okay. a Raiders fan, and I feel bad for him because he says uh Sorry. Mike or McDaniels will be back next year. Ugh. Look, and, and he says that the owner, Mark Davis, said that his roster moves will happen before the coach. I can understand that if if you weren't blowing, if you hadn't blown three 17 point leads, blown three 17 point leads already this year, again, and this wasn't even in the Colts game last week. Doing that and then not showing up against a team that has a brand new coach that's never done it before, mm. that's a coaching issue, not a roster issue, in my yeah, opinion. That's wild. Uh, final one to get to. Justin Fields had himself a really good week against the Detroit Lions, which who, who could have seen that one coming? Uh, but he made NFL history by rushing for at least 140 yards and a touchdown twice in a season uh, and did that in back-to-back weeks. Now, I know he did that against some mediocre teams. Oh, Detroit. Sorry, Detroit. Fine. But... How many teams in the NFL do you think would, would, if they were just erasing their entire roster and starting from scratch, how many quarterbacks do you think would be selected before Justin Fields in a fantasy draft? Well, Mahomes, Allen, for sure. Uh huh. I would still put Justin Herbert on that list just because I think he's the real deal. I, I, I just would not. Justin Herbert, I mean. I think Herbert's more of an issue with the coaching. and Maybe. I think I think the, like this year it's just the weapons have been hurt all year long. Like I heard yesterday like Justin four Fields, of their top five guys were Justin out. Justin Fields is doing this with Darnell Mooney. I get it, but I, I think I would still take Herbert. If I had if he had a good coach and his weapons were healthy, I think you'd be talking about the Chargers being still a legit team. I think I would still take Lamar ahead of him. And then it comes down to, do I like Joe Burrow over Justin Fields? And I think I would still stick with Joe Burrow. I know that's probably going to be some people that would say, oh, he he's not as good a quarterback. I know BK's not a big fan, you know. Um, well, he doesn't like his their, yeah, their head yeah, coach. True. Thinks they suck. I think those would probably be the five. I don't think there's anybody that I'm forgetting. May, yeah, you know what? Maybe I might take... Based on what I've seen this year, I might take Jalen Hurts ahead of him. Too. Yeah, I, I was thinking of that because I've, I've comped Justin Fields to Jalen Hurts. I think my list before I would get to Justin Fields would be Patrick Mahomes and Josh Allen. 
And then I think I'm going Justin Fields. Really? I, I just think the way he plays, I mean, he plays like Lamar Jackson and like Jalen Hurts, and he's doing it with no offense, no offensive line in a really weird play scheme. Like people were calling for their head coach's head at the beginning of this season. And now all of a sudden, Justin Fields is one of the best quarterbacks, one of the best young quarterbacks in the game. I, I just, I, I, I can't justify taking Herbert over Fields, mostly because of the run game and he's got more weapons to him. And as great as Jalen Hurts is, Jalen Hurts wasn't good until they got A.J. Brown. And Lamar Jackson, I could hear the argument for Lamar Jackson, but I think I might go Justin Fields third on that list. The biggest thing for me is I just want to see him do it another year before I really start moving him higher up on that list. I mean, they barely got Chase Claypool involved yet last yesterday, too, which also was surprising to me. Uh, Those are our NFL quick hitters coming up next. We've got our BK and Ferrario Rewind and... You've got your opportunity to win Thomas Rhett tickets now. A pair of free tickets to Thomas Rhett's home team tour with special guest Cole Swindell on Saturday, May 20th at Enterprise Center. The tickets are on sale now. If you don't get the chance to win this pair of tickets, well, you got your bonus chance at 101ESPN.com or on the 101 mobile app. If you can tell us what we had in the junk drawer that Tanner is afraid to get on, you tell us that. Air Comfort Service text line 65780. If you're Texter 101 with the correct answer, we'll give you a pair of free Thomas Rhett tickets. Do that. The Rewind next here on 101 ESPN. We're right back to the PK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN. up here on BK and Ferrario as we hit our rewind and we're going to close things down the way we started it with the St. Louis Blues coming off a victory against the Vegas Golden Knights taking on Colorado tonight puck drop at 8 o'clock I've got your first community credit union pregame starting at 7 alongside Joe Vitale and Tanner I said it in the open that before I sit here and jump back on board I do want to see this team go up against a team that's hot and in the right space rather than a Vegas team that, yes, they had won nine straight, but it was kind of one of those trap games where they returned home after a five-game road trip. Um, I want to Jordan Bennington playing in this game tonight I think is going to be lights out because he's going to play against a Colorado team. Now, I know they don't got Nazem Kadri, but still, he's going to want a little revenge. Uh, the offense is feeling a little bit better How do they perform against this Colorado team, though? That's what I think I'm most curious about before I sit here and say the Blues might be back. Yeah, can he put together two really good performances against really good teams? And I agree with you, the Vegas game, kind of a trap game for them, but they're still a really good team. Can he do it in, it's not back-to-back, but can he do it in back-to-back games as a scenario? Can Can you respond the way that you did in the Vegas game and play like that? Can you keep Colorado to the outside? Or is this going to be one of those games where it gets away from the Blues defenseman? I that's what I'm intrigued to see by because it's one thing to beat the Vegas Golden Knights, but can you continue to do it? Good teams continue to beat the top teams in both West and Eastern Conference. They went over the Sharks. It was a good one to end the losing streak, but it's against a team that's projected to be one of the worst in the league. Can you do it against Colorado, who's projected to be one of the best in the Central, if not the best in the Central Division? It'll be interesting to see because they've Bennington historically has Colorado's uh, number. 
he's going to be the guy that I think can potentially steal this one for him tonight. Yeah, well, and you got an opportunity to jump a little bit in the Central Division. You're still sitting at the bottom with 10 points, and you're not really going to go anywhere. But if you pick up a win, you got 12 points. You'll sit behind Colorado uh, by five, but you've got two games in hand, and you'll be one point behind Arizona and Nashville. And then you got a matchup on Wednesday against Chicago, who, if you win tonight, you'll be three points behind them. In the schedule, if you can win tonight, the schedule really softens for you, as you were mentioning. I mean, you go to Chicago, which is always tough in a rivalry mm-hmm. game, but they're not really that good a team. Washington's been kind of off and on this season, and then two with Anaheim, who are at the bottom yeah. of the Western Conference. So the schedule really softens. If you can win tonight, you can really potentially build some momentum over the next week and a half. And you're home for a little bit, and you got some time yeah. off after those back-to-back, so it could benefit you. We'll find out tonight. 8 o'clock puck drop, 7 o'clock pregame. The fast lane will lead you up until then. They're next here on 101 ESPN. You've been listening to the BK and Ferrario podcast presented by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers on 101 ESPN.